Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. At this point, I've had the pleasure of having over 100 Ideas Roadshow conversations with a wide variety of experts in many different disciplines. History, physics, philosophy, linguistics, and more. Some have been surprising, others have been amusing, virtually all have been highly engaging. But I can safely say that none have been as downright enjoyable as my conversation with Alcino Silva, the wonderfully charismatic and inspirationally impressive UCLA neuroscientist. Most non-specialists, I'd venture to guess, have never heard of Alcino. But if there's one person who represents the importance of making an effort to talk to people who are not fixated on promoting themselves, instead spending their days simply doing their transformative research and advancing our understanding, it's Alcino. Enjoy. I wanted to start at the very beginning, very briefly, because there's an awful lot I want to ask you, but I do want to talk a little bit about your origins and and how you got into the field. So my understanding is um, Portuguese descent, but you spent much of your formative years in Angola. In Africa, yeah, Angola, Africa. It, you know, my father went there when he was young, and uh, you know, because of the war, unfortunately, right. and then he stayed. Um, so the most adventurous of the Portuguese went to the colonies. Right. <laughs> and and so fortunately, my parents right. went, and uh, yeah, so uh, it was an amazing place. I left when I was eleven because of the war. And then I spent another few years in Portugal and came to the States. Uh, but Africa was amazing. I've not been able to go back yet, but my father tells me that it's safe now. So I'm planning to go back. Um, well, that would be quite eye-opening. I have, I have Googled uh, visit the place. So Luanda, it's, it's amazing. You know, Google has a lot of Luanda in it. So I've spent a, f- a few hours. Really? <laughs> Navigating, trying to find places that I so is your old recognize. House still there? Yeah, the place where you used to I live. I have not been able to find my house actually, which is strange. Um, I don't have a very clear memory of where it was relative to big landmarks. Right. Uh, I know, of course, you know the general area, and sure. I, but I unfortunately have not been able to get to my house yet. But uh, you know, Luanda is a beautiful city, you know, by the ocean, and it's really a marvelous place. I have great memories of the place. Um, but then the war came and everything changed. Right. I was, as you were talking, I was thinking, you've lived in a lot of different places and you've almost always lived in fairly close proximity to an ocean. <laughs> Actually, that's <laughs> true. Uh, even, even Utah was by the Great Salt Lake. Right. Okay. <laughs> salty, <laughs> salty bodies that, of water. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time windsurfing in Utah, other than in the lab. Uh, and the other time I spent in Utah, most of it was windsurfing. Right. <laughs> Uh, in the in the many lakes that you yeah, a lot of water right. in Utah yeah. too actually. So so you come back uh, as a as a child um, as a I guess as a teenager you mm-hmm. you you came back to Portugal, and you finished off your schooling in Portugal, mm-hmm. and then you went off to uh, to Rutgers to the United States for mm-hmm. your for your undergraduate degree, 
And was that was that a, a difficult transition at all when you when you no, first arrived? No, I was so excited. I mean, I missed my parents. I missed my girlfriend. I wrote to her almost every day, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I was so excited, you know, to be here. I. Um, when thinking about the future, I wanted to leave Portugal at the time because, uh, you know, the universities were so uh, bothered by the revolution. You know, we had the revolution in 74 right. and uh, that disorganized the country and uh, there was a, a whole lot of upheaval that affected the universities. And I used that as my excuse to essentially convince my parents to let me go to the furthest place I could go to. Right. You know, because I had hitchhiked all over Europe. And, uh, but it's hard to hitchhike to the States. It is. <laughs> but they, they, and, they, they uh, needed convincing? They, they weren't... Well, you know, every parent needs convincing to part of their child. Right. You know, they have to see with clarity that the place they're going to is good for their future. I mean, it was difficult for my parents. Uh, I didn't go home every few months sure. and they knew what it meant for me to come here that eventually I would probably end up by marrying and staying here which is exactly you know what happened so they knew that and it was difficult right. um, but I've done my best I, I I go back home you know frequently and uh, I've had associations with Portuguese universities and anyway so I, I do the best I can to right. sort of pay back country and, and, and visit my family. And you were given uh, an award, right? 2007, you were, you were, <laughs> yes. you were given uh, quite a prestigious award. From, indeed, from indeed, indeed. Uh, I, first I thought I just picked the wrong Alcino Silva. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. Yeah. But <laughs> How many of them are there? Is this like John, John Smith or something like no, that in Portugal? No, Silva is like Smith, yeah. but Alcino is not. Alcino is a relatively unusual name. So, yeah. so they got the right guy. Uh, yes, they did. Eventually, I was convinced it was not a prank or something. <laughs> but no, I, I was pleased, especially because the award uh, commemorated one of the most inspiring figures in history that I know. You know, this is a man that uh, uh, established what we now uh, know as an institute at a time where everything was really balkanized. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, paid a lot of people to come together and develop navigation. Uh, and this was unheard of. He gave them very large amounts of, of, of money and, uh, and land, and all they had to promise is that they will share everything they knew with each other, mm. which was unheard of. Right. Um, so the original open source. And they did. Yeah. And they came and they formed this institute and he changed the history of Portugal. Uh, we went elsewhere and some of this history is checkered as you know yeah. uh, because not every place we went we did good but you know it changed the history of Portugal and it started this concept that you could share knowledge and for a greater good right. so there were instruments that were developed so it was not just sharing knowledge it was uh, a group of people that that was dedicated to develop new instruments and this was the Infanto Henrique and this award that I got was was commemorating this man, which I admire deeply, actually. So it's very, very fitting. I, I hadn't appreciated I, that, 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 yeah, uh, that there was a tremendous amount of symbolism in terms of utilizing science, technology, spreading, spreading our understanding for the greater yeah, good. And sharing and developing and, and etc. So it's, uh, I think it's one of Portugal's proudest moments, actually. That and what preceded it, well, another incredible event where this king planted a forest from north to south of Portugal. And you imagine the enormous amount of investment for that. Yeah. With the vision of developing navigation later on, 
So imagine the enormous resources that you'd have to invest a generation ahead of actually getting any returns. And this is down the knees. Yeah. Planted a forest. How is that tied to navigation? Oh, because for navigation you need boats, oh, and right, for right, boats you need wood, and right, without wood you don't have it. So we so didn't have enough wood in Portugal. And we also had another problem is that we had these winds coming in and spoiling some of our uh, land by the ocean. But so that was wasn't really the big thing. The big thing was to, to grow plant wood, and wood for the for next sure. generation. Wow, that's Just imagine if our politicians could do that today. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Plant wood for the next generation. <laughs> it's hard, hard, hard to get a month out sometimes. Exactly. And I mean, and this is a, an enormous amount of resources that were there. Because this was, I think, if I'm correct, half a mile and the length of the coast of Portugal. Wow. And those woods are still there today. Really? Yeah. 800, 900 years later. Wow. Yeah. So, and then... They're probably thicker because there aren't nearly as many boats. <laughs> <laughs> and then later... When we had all this wood and all these boats came in Fanteric to develop the science that allowed us to circum uh, circumnavigate to, uh, uh, you know, you know, the globe, right. go around right. uh, the south of Africa and, right. uh, uh, and South America. I mean, we just went everywhere, you know, you know, because these two men had the vision, you know, to do so. Okay. It's really incredible. Anyway, yeah. I want to get... I wanna get <laughs> No, 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 but it is, it is, it is fascinating. Uh, I mean, it, it's important because, you know, it's interesting. We often think about history as disconnected from us, but it's, it has an inspirational side to it, you know, that men that are related to you were able to do these types of things. I wonder how many young men in Portugal have thought about that. Right. And I, I think it's important. Yeah. Well, when we go viral in Portugal, I think more people will be... <laughs> We'll be, we'll be aware of um, So getting, getting back to your story, an interesting thing uh, that struck me is when you, when you came back, or what, rather when you came to the United States and you started your undergraduate mm -hmm. career, you were interested in science and you were also interested in philosophy. Yeah. You were interested in epistemology and where knowledge comes from and you talk about how eventually you were able to reconnect these things, but they were... They were disparate in, in, in the very beginning. Um, so my, my question is, did you have these ideas when you first started, when you left Portugal? Were you thinking, oh, I really love science, I want to do science, I want to do something in the scientific world? Or was it just, uh, just a sense of moving across the ocean, experiencing uh, high quality education in a tumultuous time and putting some distance between you and your... <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you and know, young people love adventures, sure, right? Sure. But uh, yes, so that was a big, a big component of it. But another one was science. Uh, so you were already motivated. Yes, strongly motivated. I was. Did you have a sense of what sort of science you wanted to do then? Uh, not really, but science really motivated me. And knowing how we know was always at the center. I mean, you know, when you're young, you don't think things the way you eventually think of them. But in Portugal, people took philosophy lessons, uh, classes uh, in high school, which is really interesting. So I had two years of philosophy, two, two years in, in high school. And uh, one of the questions that fascinated me the most is how do we know what we know? And it was clear to me that that question was central to all of science, because if we don't understand how we process information about the world, how can we really know that what we do process is reliable? You know, maybe there is an evil deceiver at every step that uh, shifts what we find and changes it in a way that's actually not reflecting of, uh, of reality. Right. Or maybe there are, you know, systematic errors of processing that we commit that change 
how we interpret the world and how we engineer things that work around us. So to me, that I thought, you know, if there's one question in science, that's it. You know, that's. But you know, th people know things with different degrees of clarity, right? Sure. Um, and I don't think I knew that with the same degree of clarity that uh, I now express, I you know, today. Well, I, I hope not. I mean, but, my goodness, uh, if you if, yeah. if you already knew all that when you yeah. were an undergraduate. Yeah. No. You know. But I, I think that was always in the back of my mind. So w w when I was. Uh, in school, the classes I took were science classes and biology classes because, again, it's about you know the brain, it's about the body. How how does this work as an engine of knowledge, essentially? And then it was about you know philosophy and epistemology, right. and uh, and that continued in in my graduate studies. Eventually, I decided not to go into into philosophy simply because I just loved science. I loved tinkering in the lab, you know, going to the lab and making things happen. <laughs> <laughs> that was great fun, and uh, uh, and but then in graduate school it continued. You know my interest in both, uh, and and then when I got my own job eventually, as uh, as a professor, uh, then that has continued. And, and and to this day, actually, I was just in Toronto. I was telling, and uh, in Toronto, uh, I was at a conference about uh, uh, how can we devise tools and strategies to deal with the immensity of information in science. So all of this goes back to my high school years and to my philosophy classes. Well, but you've never learned. I mean, it's very interesting because you're... It's funny how it's, we are one, one person that just morphs slowly but never really actually changes. Right. Well, it gets deeper, maybe. So, maybe, yes. But, but it, it is interesting for me observing some of the things that you're doing and saying, aha, there is a real drive here that's fairly constant, comes up in all sorts of different ways, comes up obviously in aspects of neuroscience. How do we learn? How do, how do we remember things? How, do exactly. we, how can we be sure that we know what we know? These things are all deeply interconnected. Yeah. And then later on when we talk about your research maps and, and, and how we can get a clear sense of what the research world is actually doing and, and, and whether we, how we can capitalize on knowledge mm -hmm. and, and how we can apply it, how we can be certain of it, how we might be misled. I mean, these are fairly, seems to me, fairly constant themes that run through your, your, your research career and your, your entire life. Not surprising. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it has been a, a passion of mine, you know, and that lately we have focused a great deal on trying to leverage this knowledge to help people that are not born with brains like ours or that something happens and then they have problems in cognitive function. But it's, it's all part of this human experience, you know, uh, which is how do we find our place uh, in this vastness. And then for me, my, my place has been about, you know, focusing on <laughs> how do we know what we know and how can we leverage this information about the brain to try to help, in, even in modest ways, those around us. Uh, that has been sort of the, yeah. Right. Uh, so I want to talk about the research. I want to talk about memory and learning, <laughs> and I want to talk about uh, cognitive deficits and, and how we can, uh, remarkably, it seems, consider concrete ways to be able to, uh, to improve matters. Mm -hmm. But um, I want to talk a little bit more generally first. So mm -hmm. you've worked an awful lot with mice, and you've worked with, uh, with flies, right? Mm -hmm. And you probably we worked did, with, with billions of other things as well. But um, for me, uh, as somebody who doesn't know anything about this, I think, okay, mice, that's interesting that, that that he's working with mice, but um, 
how, how does that really relate to, to exactly. humans? And why is it that, that, that mice are the, seem to be the animals of choice for so many of these types of experiments? Is it just because it's easy to somehow manipulate them? Or is, is there a really deep structural similarity between mice brains and human brains? So it's both, actually. Uh, you know, it, it always amazes me that even when we look at high-order behaviors and, and we look at mutations that, for example, cause autism in, uh, in humans, right? So if you have autism, you have problems with social interaction. You have problems with repetitive behavior, right? So these are very human-like qualities, right? And to me, it's amazing that we can have the same mutation in mice and we can recreate some of these same behaviors. So here you have a brain, well, our brain, and we have a little mouse brain, right? Uh, but the principles, the engineering principles, you know, uh, that were used by evolution or uh, to, to build both uh, are similar. And we know that because as we look at the genes, as we look at the cells, as we look at the structure of these brains. We find more things in common than not, actually. And the amazing thing, you, you, you referred to a little bit of work that I did in flies when I was an undergraduate, okay? So even when you take these brain genes that are known to be involved in memory, genes that are active in memory, that are needed for memory, right? You look at them in flies. You look at them in C. elegans, these little tiny worms, right? And you find that the same genes, the same fundamental chemical processes are there in these worms when they learn, in the flies when they learn, in aplegia, these sea slugs, they're there too. And you see them in mice and you see them in humans. It's really magical actually. It's really truly magical because I guess we sit in this privileged position, right? So uh, we are capable of Shakespeare and we are capable of, of Beethoven. But so much of what's underlying this, you can find uh, actually all the way into East. East of some of the same proteins that react to changes in that environment and, and communicate these signals and then East does something metabolic that's appropriate. You see it in flies, you see it in aplegia, all the way up into humans. Um, so at that level, at the, at the genetic level, at the structural level, at the psychological level, we have conservation. And that's why we can use mouse models with some caveats, of course, sure. uh, in studies in humans. I mean, ethically, it, it will be just impossible to do the types of studies we need to do to understand whether a gene that causes autism, how does it do so? A gene that causes schizophrenia, a gene that causes Alzheimer's. Sure. You know, we need to know at a very detailed manner because we need to intervene and we need to treat these horrible disorders. Um, and so one way you know, to do this is to use mice. It's not the only way, but it's certainly one way that has gotten a lot of play and has a lot of grounding. So what are in, some of the other mother. ways to... Well, you know, people have used uh, more complex animals uh, all, the way up to, uh, all the way up to primates. Right. Uh, they've used other model systems. There are certain aspects of the chemistry of the brain that you can capture even in cells. Really? Yes. Uh, you, you know, uh, neurons change when they react with other neurons. And some of these changes, some of this, these molecular engines, you can capture in just cell lines. The problem is that in those cell lines, you, don't, you can't capture the other complexity that's important. Because you just isolated one mechanism. That's right. But all of these models play an important role. Right. You know? It's just that each brings a uniqueness and an advantage that the others don't. Right. I mean, the great thing about cell lines is that you can have you know, a billion of them 
in little wells, literally. Right. And you can scream through them, maybe not a billion, but a million of them. Awesome. And you can scream through them in terms of robots and right. look for things that may give us a hint that this drug works in autism or Alzheimer's or schizophrenia in order to screen a million mice will be very expensive and very difficult, right? right. So each model brings a different thing into this table. Right. And the goal at the end is to understand and be able to treat. That's really One just experimental question because I'm, uh, I really don't understand the experimental world very well. I'm always in awe of people who can actually do stuff. When you're talking about a fly, mm -hmm. and we're talking about doing something with a fly's brain, mm -hmm. I mean, are you... Like, are you manipulating, actually? <laughs> <laughs> These are very small things, right? I mean, I, they how are, do you, how you know. How do you do that? So, uh, in both mice and flies, uh, and other organisms now, rats, for example, it is possible to tinker with their genome. And the nucleus, the genome, is sort of the blueprint of what that organism will become. It's the instructions that uh, are used by the organism to build a brain to build a repertoire of behaviors, including memory, right. that the animal will have. So by tinkering with the blueprints, by tinkering with the software, if you will, we can then shape the hardware, we can shape the brain. So how do you actually do this? Because I hear of these words like viral vectors or something That's like right. that. That's right. I don't know what the heck So there is a variety of ways that we can tinker with, uh, uh, with the genome. Yeah. We can do it at different stages of the life of the organism. For example, in the mouse, you can do it early on when the mouse is just a single you know, gamete. Mm. Or you can do it when the mouse is just a single cell embryo. Okay. Or you can do it later on when there's a live mouse by taking a viral vector with specific genetic instructions and place it on a brain region that you want to understand. So you can intervene genetically at different stages and the consequences are different, right? So if you have a disorder that a patient has from birth, you may want to intervene, you may want to create this mutations early on because that's what happens in humans but if you want to understand in detail a process that's underlying attention that's underlying emotion anything then you may want to manipulate genes or or manipulate other things locally in the brain regions that we already know are involved in that behavior and you can how do you get at this thing locally like how can you well we have a map of the brain essentially so we know what part is involved in working memory, what part is involved in repetitive behavior, okay. what part is involved in spatial navigation, all sure. of these things. And we know them in a three-dimensional atlas. Sure. So we can place a little pipette, like a straw, right into that so area, really and the liver virus is there. Wow. Actually, these days we can do even more. We can activate these neurons by changing the channel composition of these regions so that when you shine a light, these neurons come alive or are repressed in that activity. Yeah, because I read some of this. This, yeah. just, this just seemed like science fiction to me. How, how, it's how... truly amazing. I mean, these days, we can even change the brain so we know ahead of time what cells will have a given memory. So we can channel memories into certain brain regions, into certain brain cells, and then manipulate those cells and then see what happens to memory. Okay, I want to I mean, get anyway, back to but that. Anyway, no, 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 but that's no, another... No, I, no, I want, I'm going to get there, trust me, because I want, I want a whole discussion about memory. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine at the very beginning, okay, what are the, How do you manipulate what are the techniques yeah. that these guys are doing? They're, they're in a lab, uh -huh. I hear these things, you know, papers, mice, flies, all this uh -huh. kind of stuff, and I think, okay, mice I can sort of understand, flies I'm... No, but in flies you can change genes like you can right. do so in mice. Uh, in flies you have these elements that are, you know, transposons. They move around in the genome. And people have 
been able to take advantage of them to change the genetic makeup of flies. So, you know, DNA is a molecule and you can place it in certain places and then that molecule changes the instructions that the fly has to engineer a whole big fly and then those flies mate with other flies and that mutation is passed along. Mm -hmm. So you have whole strains that are exactly the same except for one change that you have made you know, genetically. Right. But these days, amazingly enough, you can place these flies on a machine and, and you can image their brains as the fly no. thinks it's flying around. You can get real-time imaging of flies? Real-time imaging as flies think they are flying. So you immobilize the fly and, uh, and, and, and you change the environment of the fly so that the fly thinks it's flying because you, you collect uh, information about the torque from its wings and then you can image the up. brain. This is really, this is really true. This is really true. <laughs> unbelievable. See, this is why I have a hard time getting away from the lab. I mean, this stuff is magical. <laughs> This is really, I mean, we don't do flies, but we, I mean, we do other things could. in mice. You could if you wanted to. No, wanted well, to, yeah, yeah you, know, you know, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, you, you, but we do things in mice that are just as amazing. Uh, and these days, I'm, this hasn't always been the case. I mean, I remember as a student, one of the big problems in neuroscience in general is how few things you could do. But now the whole thing has changed. Now we have far more technology than what we know to do with it, right. you know. The limitation now is not whether we can do X or Y. The limitation now is whether we have imaginations and creativity right. and just a working right. memory and a knowledge base and that would allow us to... And a structure as well, and a structure, what, what, what you... You know, to be able about. to take advantage of right. this information and do things that are creative and in, 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 innovative. So uh, we are no longer limited by what we can do. Now we are limited by the sizes of our imaginations, actually, which is an amazing place to be, because essentially what this means is that the problem space in neuroscience has been yeah, you know, blown wide open. Yeah, yeah. Where do you go on that problem space? It's only dependent on you, right. which is sort of a tough thing for scientists. Well, it's a <laughs> nice a way, it's problem nice, to have. Exactly, it's a very <laughs> nice problem to have, but you know, but there is its problems, because you, know, you cannot say, well, if only I could do this, if I only right. I could, now you can do it. Right. But whether your minds can take you there, now that's a different question. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's a really incredible time to be in the neurosciences. There's no doubt about it, yeah. I, I want to talk uh, a little bit about just labels. So, mm -hmm. so I read, uh, Alcino Silva, he's a, a molecular and, and cellular cognition guy, uh -huh. MCC guy, and then I read more and it's, he's one of the founders of MCC, <laughs> and I think, well, but this is just neuroscience, like this is just, <laughs> this is just what should be happening, the sorts of things you're talking about, we understand various mechanisms better, we understand, we're working with DNA, we, we're, we're working with the genome, we're working with all these things, isn't that just... I mean, what does that label mean? What is not MCC now for I people see. to actually yeah. be, be doing in this I mean, kind of field? Uh, neuroscience is huge, uh, and there's a lot going on. I mean, there are people, for example, that are interested in understanding the human brain at a level that imaging allows you to understand it. You know, you place patients in MRIs, uh, you place pa you know, you know, patients in PET machines, you, right. you look at potentials in the brain of patients, and from all of this information, you develop models of how brain regions interact during important, interesting behavioral uh, things that we do, memory, attention, emotion, all of that, consciousness, you know. Uh, so 
you know, there's an immense world in, in, in cognitive neuroscience, which is the label for that area that I just uh, did a, a, a strong disservice to. I'm sure my colleagues, if anyone ever watches this, which I doubt, but if they do, they go, hey, what hey, is that on. guy talking about? Hang on. If, any, if, if anyone ever watches this, which you doubt, what are we doing all this for? No, Shall we know, just leave? My or, colleagues, my <laughs> colleagues, you know, I mean, you know, one of the rules when you watch this kind of stuff is that you watch physics, you watch geology, you don't watch your home court, you know. Hey, but anyway, you but know, if they do. There are a lot of gossips out there. There are <laughs> a lot of people that want to know what you're saying. Exactly, and you know, from the the other interviews that I I, I heard, they were really really that's interesting. That's no, no, no. Okay. But <laughs> anyway, so you see, there's a world in cognitive neuroscience right. outside of genes and proteins and cells and physiology and all of that. Right. You know, there are individuals that are strictly interested in clinical neuroscience. You know, uh, and understanding patients, understanding disorders, how to diagnose them, how to find those unique aspects worth studying. It's a huge world there. Uh, in development, individuals uh, that uh, uh, neuroscientists that instead of understanding the adult brain, they want to understand how that brain develops. Why? Because there are so many developmental processes that go awry and then give origin to problems that we see in adults. So if we were to understand in detail how the different brain regions develop, how neurons migrate, how all of those developmental processes take place, we may be able to understand with more clarity the origins of schizophrenia and autism and all those terrible yeah, but disorders. That's, that's related to the sort of stuff you're doing as well. It is, I but mean, it's a whole other world because it's a larger, it's a larger I, I more focused, more, I mean, it's really a, a huge world. And, it, you know, just, just the molecular processes involved in neuroscience, finding the genes behind, you know, genetic disorders. I, you know, there's a colleague of mine, incredibly successful, you know, Dan Gashwin, whose main focus in his lab is to understand how genes interact with other genes, what genes are responsible for autism and, and other disorders. So there's a huge world there too. Uh, what, makes, uh, what makes molecular and cellular cognition unique is the fact that we work between these fields, if you will. You know, there was a time in neuroscience where knowledge was balkanized. Uh, you know, you had molecular neuroscientists, you had psychologists, you had, you know, physiologists. And these groups, I'm talking about 20, 30 years ago, right. and these groups hardly talked you know, right. to each other. Then there were a number of technologies that came into play that allow these groups to interact and to actually have something to talk about, to be able to do experiments together. Right. And that brought them together. And that is actually the origins of molecular and cellular cognition. Uh, when I helped form that society, now 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, we, uh, we didn't have a community of people that worked with molecules and cells and behavior. And we really needed that, that kind of community because it was different than just working in any one of these areas. Right. There were special questions, special needs, special right. approaches right. that we had. Our papers looked different. And that's why we brought together that society. Uh, now, a great part of the work in neuroscience, as, as you said well, is work that connects different areas from molecules all the way to behavior. But this is a relatively recent uh, change in neuroscience. You know, for, for most of its history, you know, neuroscience was really separated into, into different fields. Is that manifesting so, itself in the educational process? When you look at people who are, who are now doing graduate degrees and graduate degrees, how quickly is, is this, uh, are these changes actually catching up? With they the are education? catching up. I mean, it, I see it in my students, you know. I remember at one point that because I started from the molecular and cellular perspective. 
uh, from molecular and cellular end of neuroscience. And when I talked 30 years ago with molecular and cellular neuroscientists, they didn't even know the basics of behavioral neuroscience. You know, what are the key tasks? What do they measure? What are the brain regions involved? You know, how can you test animals? None of this was part of the of the working knowledge of molecular and cellular neuroscientists, you know, uh, 30 years ago. Now, it's very difficult to find a molecular and cellular neuroscientists that doesn't have quite a good understanding of the psychology that's used to test ideas and principles that they use in their own, in their, you know, they may not do it themselves. You know, not everybody's doing all of these things together in, in their own labs. But what you find, which is really different, is that the language is in place, the knowledge is in place. People know what psychologists are doing. So they can know, talk to each other. Exactly. exactly. And this is what really has made a tremendous difference in the last 10, you know, 15 years in neuroscience. There's a great deal of integration. So it seems to me, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about NF1 later on mm -hmm. uh, along the lines of, uh, <laughs> of this talk that I saw on YouTube, uh, which I would recommend everyone to see, by the way, in all, in all sincerity. Um, but as you're talking about what's happening in the lab and who's mm -hmm. coming up with what idea and who's implementing what, mm -hmm. it strikes me that there is a, a disparate array of different skills that people have to have, not only diagnostic skills, but also implementing things. Again, I'm trying to think very concretely, okay, they have these ideas, but people actually have to be training these rats, They uh, sorry, mice, I never know what to... They are mice, right? They are there is a mice, difference between yeah. mice and rats. <laughs> I'm not a bio. I don't know, but I guess mice are cuter, maybe. I, it's just a few million years of evolution. Okay, but... right. <laughs> Give or take. So, yes. <laughs> so, um, so someone has to be training these mice and and then setting up the experimental apparatus. I mean, I'm learning now uh, when uh, when it comes to fMRI. Mm -hmm. uh, which I was very cavalier about before. Oh, you stick someone in a machine and you get some results. There is a whole art to actually having the appropriate background so that you can ask exactly. the right questions, so that you can have the right mask, the filter to, to focus on the, that exactly. particular area of the brain. So these are all different techniques. And, and I'm guessing that if you're running a lab, it's almost like a team sport. It's almost like you're the general absolutely. manager of a sports franchise and you have to be having everyone work together. It is kind absolutely, of like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And the trick is to have a group which is collaborative enough that these arrangements arise spontaneously where you help me, you, if you're a psychologist, you help me with studies that I'm doing because my background is molecular you know, biology or or physiology, but since I'm a physiologist, I will help you with your, uh, with your physiology experiments. And there's a natural organic that evolves in a, in a lab. Initially, it took some work to put it in place, right. uh, because I remember many years ago, we had physiologists coming to the lab, and you know, generally, they wanted to learn some behavior, but they, came, they would come into the lab, and essentially, they'll end up by just doing physiology, because they felt uncomfortable doing right. behavior, uh, and vice versa. Right. But with time, when there's this sharing of approaches, this sharing and collaborative atmosphere in the lab, then another person comes in and just falls right through this, into, this, into this tradition, which is well established, and there are rules. So it's not like you're being taken advantage of, you're right. not losing something, you are actually gaining. And there are all these unspoken rules that you absorb automatically. And just the sheer force of, of how the group acts then you hop on that and you naturally, so that n needs not to be orchestrated anymore. You know, the established, you know, sociology of, of the group is responsible for it. Having said that, of course, you need to, you need to figure out who should be doing what and sure. who is best suited to do this type of work. And new people are always coming in as well. I mean, you, they you, are. you must make sure that 
it's a classic sin of academics that, that, at least in my experience, that they're always trying to recruit people who are exactly like themselves. They're trying to iterate that all the time. And you, you clearly have to be thinking globally in terms of your absolutely, lab. Absolutely, absolutely. And what, what I've learned, what every PI, you know, what every principal investigator learns is that uh, uh, you need to have a mixture of people with different talents in the lab. You really do. Uh, you need people that are incredibly good at experiments. You need people that are incredibly collaborative, people that are incredibly imaginative. You need all of these folks working together. But, you know, they just happen to come anyway because there's such diversity in academia that uh, if you just hire people with passion that can get things done, essentially that's what I look for. I look for people that are committed to science, that have an history of being able to get things done. And, uh, you know, and, but they're all very different on everything else. Uh, and, and it just seems to work, actually. It's actually quite amazing how well it works. Uh, I don't remember the last time that there was a problem in my lab. Because you think with all these A personalities working together, right. you know, competing for a limited number of jobs, for a, you think that there will be more attrition, but there isn't. Um, and one of the reasons has to do with the fact that we don't just have one project. We have several projects. So people feel that they have their own arenas. And so collaboration is not giving up something, it's actually getting something yeah. and gets them to work together. And in general, it's a very positive reinforcing environment, you know, where people feel that they gain by collaboration. They're not losing or giving up something. And you were telling me earlier that your experience is that here at UCLA, it's a particularly welcoming environment. It is actually. It, it must be the warm weather. Yeah. <laughs> people are more relaxed, you know, it's California, LA right. after all, you know, and <laughs> I don't know what it is. I mean, I joke about it, but it's one of the most important things for, an, for a neuroscience you know, community. Uh, I'm not sure about other communities. I haven't worked on cancer for many years. At one point, I, I worked in a lab that did a lot of cancer, so I really don't know. But what I do know is that for neuroscience, where, you, where problems often span molecules and physiology and systems and behavior and clinical trials, as they have in some of our projects, you know, you can't get away with not being collegial, with not being open, with not being collaborative. You know, if you are, then you are cut from that which is most exciting in neuroscience today, which is this integration. You know, this ability to go from an idea, from a discovery in flies, to a clinical trial in humans, from a discovery in mice, to testing uh, these findings in functional imaging studies where patients come in and you're scanning their brains. You know, I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah. And, but you can only get there if you have a community that's supportive and open because often if you ask, well, what am I gaining out of this? You know, you're not really gaining a whole lot. In the short term. But in the short term, right. exactly, immediately in the short term. Right. But in the long term you are and it's just fun to work with colleagues, you know, and, and get to share on these discoveries. And really that's what fuels most of the people at, at UCLA. When I, when I get down to it, it's not co-authorship because, you know, by the time your name is in the middle of a paper somewhere, you don't get that much out of it. Yeah. It's just the fun of working with, uh, with people on, on these issues that are changing mankind, essentially. So let's, let's talk about the, the science in more detail now. I've, I've held you off for a little bit because, <laughs> no, I, I, I do think these things, it's important to get aspects of no, the No, absolutely. And, and for me, yeah. when I'm looking at this, I think, well, how are they actually doing this? And, and it all sounds nice, I read a paper, but it, uh -huh. it seems almost like science fiction, but the, some of the, the scientific progress strikes me as, uh, as just remarkable in terms of pace and breadth and some of the things we understand now. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit, uh, maybe even more than a little bit, about memory and, and learning. 
Um, you do a lot of different work with memory. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a specific question to start with. So I read this, um, this piece that was, I believe, in Discover Magazine about <laughs> some, some of your work. And the basic thrust, if I'm relaying this correctly, is that uh, there had been some work done, uh, the, the common paradigm, as it were, which I think spread out of this guy Lasky, I think his name was, <laughs> in, the, in the 50s, was that <laughs> memory is distributed. So if you have a memory, it's not actually localized in any one place in the brain. <laughs> um, and then people started doing more research and recognizing, no, you can actually have some sort of a clear localized sense and you took that quite a bit further still and and was able to do considerable work which localized things almost to the the neuronal level of, of, of where yeah. memories are so that this age-old question of okay I've got this big thing on top of my shoulders and I know I have memories where are they these <laughs> memories how would you even start to address that question where are they what's our best understanding of where our memories are in our brains I guess that question is tightly connected to what memories are right you know the two maybe I should address that one first because yes. that will make sense then in yes. terms of localization I think, I think you should do things in, the, in a sensible way <laughs> no no I think your question is 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 uh, is quite uh, important because it reveals one aspect of memory that's really new uh, our ability to localize memory to the very cells, to the very synapses actually, right. to the very context between cells that change when you're, you know, when you're learning something. Right. But the first question, the first the, question, the is, question is, what, I mean, what is, is memory? Yeah. Like, what is memory? And honestly, we haven't known this with great certainty until only recently. Now, some ideas about what is memory uh, started, you know, many, many years, hundreds of years ago. Uh, some of the more prominent and useful ideas actually date back to the turn of the century when Ramon Cajal, for example, um, suggested that during learning there are changes in synapses in points of contact between two brain cells and that these changes in points of contact between brain cells are then needed for memory. Because, I mean, uh, if we learn something, it needs to be stored somewhere, right? right? And the question is, where is it stored? Right. What, what change in the brain records this information, right? So when you store something in a compact disk, uh, you make a hole in the compact disk. When you store it in a hard disk, you change the hard disk. So when you store something in the brain, you need to change the brain some, somewhat. And uh, more than 100 years ago now, yes, more than 100 years ago now, you know, Hamon Cajal you know, suggested that it's really the points of contact between cells. That idea was elaborated uh, often in the last 100 years and has only been in the last uh, really five, seven years that we have amounted enough evidence to actually know that during learning we change the synaptic weights. And what I mean by synaptic weights is how well one cell communicates with another. More greater synaptic weights means that one cell is better at firing the other. That these changes are orchestrated by hundreds of molecules and that these molecules regulate these changes in cell-cell communication in the brain and they regulate learning and memory. So molecules that trigger these changes that are involved in learning, molecules that maintain these changes are involved in memory and now for the first time in human history we have at hand the sketch of what happens in the brain when we learn and remember something. Now it's an embryonic sketch, it's you know, we don't know everything that goes on in the brain when we learn and remember. But one thing we do know now is one thing. 
And in science, it's critical to know one thing with certainty because then we can stand on that one thing and find others. If, if everywhere we are is smooshy and uncertain, you know, we keep wobbling around right. and never get anywhere. We don't have a leg to stand on. That's right, but now we do. And to, in my mind, this is probably one of the greatest achievements of modern science, actually, is for the first time to have a molecular and cellular biology of learning and memory. What are the molecular processes? What are the cellular processes in the brain that are mediating memory? We don't know all of them. That's for sure. There's much to be discovered. But we at least know one general class of them. And, and to me, um, that's a big deal. And I'm just lucky that I happened to come into play as this was all happening. And, so, uh, so I want to yeah. probe that process. A sure, of course. More. But before course. I do, I'm yeah. going to back up and I'm going to play the, the skeptic. Of course, yes. So I'm going to say, OK, here's, here's Silva. He's telling me he's been able to isolate at the molecular level, at the cellular level, what's actually going well, on. Well, not Silva, but Silva and everybody sorry, else. Sorry, but I'm only talking to Silva. <laughs> Sure. Silva as a representative sample of the neuroscientific exactly. community today. Yeah, this is an achievement that hundreds of people are sure. involved in. Sure, sure. But I, I, I don't know any of this. So here sure. I am, the, the, the ignorant but still skeptical fellow. Sure. And I say, okay, so here I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm led to believe that at the cellular molecular level, there are processes of what's triggering these synapses and that it all has to do with the, the, the potentialities, the weights of, the, of how strong the signal is how it's excited, how it's inhibited across, mm -hmm. across the synaptic connection. And then I think, well, okay, but that's just, these, these synapses are just part of, of larger systems. What yes. I really, really care about are these larger systems that are actually happening in the brains, where, where they are, how these systems, because the stuff that can happen at a micro level might be completely different at some level from the stuff that can happen at a macro level, says the skeptic. Um, so how, how, would you, how would you respond to that? That yeah, sure. this is worthwhile, this is important, but, the, but me as a systems guy, the really, really important thing is to isolate these, these systems that are actually composed of these things. And you are right. The, the most interesting I'm not, I'm place... I'm just being a skeptic. I'm no, not, no, I'm no, not you are right. no, no, you are right about this. And I'll tell you why. The most interesting place is the place we have not been. So, you know, you know 10 years ago, or 15, 20 years ago, the frontier was to come up with unequivocal evidence that the machinery that regulates synapses is is an integral part of the machinery that regulates learning and memory. We have done that. So now the next frontier is exactly what you're talking about, which is to use these components now to understand the complexity of many neurons in multiple brain regions interacting right. and allowing us to remember this conversation, so this allowing us to remember our family and all of those things right. that makes us human. So this no, is the so leg to stand right. on, as Absolutely. you were saying. This is, this is the core. Yeah, once you, once you know something, there is an implicit simplicity that comes to it. You know, it's, it's, it's the old story of Columbus standing the egg on its end, you know. Uh, I mean, he was trying to sell, the, you know, navigation to South America to the queen in Spain. And she said, why should I believe in you? And, and I said, well, uh, why don't you ask me something that uh, would, you know, prove otherwise? And she said, look, she was having breakfast and she, and she gave him this egg and says, you know, if you can stand this egg on its end, I believe that you're smart enough to take us there. And he immediately he took, took the egg and, and, and oh, just broke, broke just a little bit at the end. <laughs> and then it was, you know, standing up. So once you see the egg, you know, standing up, then, you know, there's no problem there. You know, the solution is apparent. So once we found out <laughs> that in the brain, you know, there were these synapses that changed and that this was 
an integral and central you know, component of what goes on in our brain to learn and remember, then that became transparent. Now what we are looking at is how do we take advantage of these mechanisms to regulate the complex circuit processes, the, the complex system-wide processes right. that allow us to learn and remember. And what's exciting about this is just as we were solving the first problem, which is what are the fundamental molecular processes of learning and memory, a bunch of technology came to being that allowed us to tackle this question of what are the system's mechanisms. And by system's mechanisms, I mean, let's not talk just about a single brain cell talking with another brain cell. Let's talk about right. thousands of them. Right. And let's talk about ways that we can understand how these thousands of cells are changing as we are having this conversation. You know, how does this evolve into consciousness? How does this evolve into emotion? How, you know, all of these really deep questions that we've been asking ourselves probably for as long as men have been around. And I think now we are in the position to actually ask them. So I share with you that enthusiasm for the future, which does not uh, you know, diminish Absolutely. my enthusiasm for what has been accomplished. You know? And I think in terms of, of really big accomplishments in science, you know, knowing the molecules and cellular processes of memory, this has been one of our big goals for so long. And finally, you know, we are there, I think. So tell me more about that. Tell, okay. tell me about these processes and, and, and why we're so confident that, that in fact, That's we, right. we've got this leg to stand on now. So this, what well, you will be surprised that if you were to ask this to, let's say, 10 neuroscientists that have labs like I do that work on learning and memory, Austin, well, you know, I spoke with this Alcino guy, and he was all enthusiastic and certain that now we have at hand one component of what memory is, one molecular cellular component of what memory is all about. Actually, some of them will say, what? Did he actually say that? <laughs> and then the next question he'll ask is, did you guys went drinking before yeah. your conversation? <laughs> So, they, they, they so will, that's how new it is. It's they, so and, new. And they will watch this, by the way, yeah. because they want to know what you've actually said on tape. <laughs> you know, so it's so new that there isn't general agreement. And you ask the question, how do we know? Yeah. And uh, that is central now in, in neuroscience because we have such a large database that it's important to know, how do we know? How can we tell when a project gets to a stage that is essentially you know, complete it. You would think from an outsider perspective that we know this, you know, because we're we doing these complicated things. Of course, scientists must know when things are done and just move on. Uh-uh. We have no idea when things are done. <laughs> and there is very hot debate on what are the landmarks that are recognizable when you have actually demonstrated something unequivocal. In science, usually this is a question of general agreement without any clear rules yeah. of when we have fulfilled the requirements. You know, it's really amazing. Yeah. And this is something that I have great interest on. And I've been working on this problem. When do we know yeah, that we are your, done for about, your, you know, 20 years? Well, this is your epistemological side, right? That's yeah. my, I, I confess, that's yeah. my epistemological <laughs> side. But I hope my colleagues won't hold that against me. <laughs> I do do serious science, too, absolutely. but anyway. So convince anyway. me. So okay, convince so me. here's I'm a skeptical okay. guy. Me... Um, what, what I've done, in all seriousness now, what I've done is to try to articulate implicit or explicit rules, because this is two different levels amongst my colleagues. Some of them, they will immediately say, of course, that's what we do. Others will say, well, I'm not so sure. Well, there are, the fact of the matter is that embedded in the way we do science, in the way we argue for grants, in the way we argue that our papers are right and all of that, there are certain epistemological rules. And one of the things that I've done is try to make them explicit, not just implicit. Right. And so how do we know that 
the, the machinery that regulates synaptic changes is, the, is central to the machinery that regulates learning, that these synaptic changes, this machinery is critical for learning. It turns out, and this is, may come to a surprise you know, to you, it turns out that in all of science, when you're connecting A and B, A being you know, synaptic changes, B being memory, so when you're connecting two things in science, in, in biology, in, in, in neuroscience, I don't know chemistry and physics, because I, I can't oh, speak it. to I, it because I'm I know sure. nothing about yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm sure it I know nothing about it. Ooh, I'm, I'm not sure about that, actually. But in biology, there are four main strategies that are often used. They may not be the only ones, but these are used incredibly you know, frequently. Okay? And when all four of these you know, strategies are used, and they're convergent, and repeatedly convergent, meaning they tell you one story, not 10 stories, but one story, then you know that you have understood this. So what are these strategies? So if you have A and B, they're you know, childlike simple. If you have A and B, what we do in biology and, and in neuroscience is to, is to manipulate A, and by manipulating A, we can either increase the probability of A, of A or decrease the probability of A, increase the levels of A or decrease levels of A. So those are two strategies. You increase A or you decrease A. The other one is that you look and see if A and B co-vary. Right? So Without you, touching either one of them. Yeah, exactly. And the last one is to make sure that you find something else that's important for how A causes B. And that's basically it. Uh, you know, there are other things, like for example, in systems neuroscience, what you do is to find out as much about A and B as you can and then model how A interacts with B because, you know, classically in systems neuroscience, we have not been able to manipulate A or B uh, as much because A and B may be many things spread out through the whole brain and it's hard to get to them. Right. And this okay? is where the technology has, has... has advanced us right. now. But in biology, in general, that's what you do. You manipulate A and B, you see how A and B covariates, you find what mediates between A and B. So how do we know that we have gotten somewhere when you do all four of these things many times and they, convert. and they just keep telling you the same story. Yeah. You know, you get to a point when this has happened hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times, that you know, wow, this must be true. I mean, it's like, you know, you, uh, you have an event of some kind and you have witnesses. How do you know that you understand the event when all of the witnesses that witnessed it from different perspectives tell you a single story? You know, whatever it's in common between all that has been said, you trust. Things that are sort of unique and strange about individual accounts, you doubt. But, you know, if the event is important, enough people witness it, you, you may get an account that's in common amongst all these people and that you trust. In science, it's exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. So in science, the different types of experiments give you this different perspective. You know, if you go into a gene and you take it away, right, and then you look at this other thing. So let's say you take away a gene that you need for changes between cells, okay? And now these changes don't take place. And then you look at memory and you see that memory didn't take place. Can you really say that these changes are critical for memory? Not really, they're because when you, they are just you know, related. Yeah. But you know, what about if you took the gene away and something else got changed that you don't right. know about right. that could very well be the cause for the changes in memory, not the change in synaptic function. The same thing, let's say that you increase the levels of a gene and now you get better synaptic changes and you get better memory. Can you, can you really say 
that that's how memory takes place. Maybe by increasing levels of that gene, you just made something that has nothing to do with what normally goes on. And now you have better memory, but just, just like you get better memory when you have a lot of caffeine or when you are more attentive or something like that. Who knows? There's other reasons why you get, you know, and so on and so forth. Right. You know, if you see two things correlated, you know, do you know that one causes the other? Of course not, you know, because they may have something else that causes them both, right? right? So, but when you get the same picture with all of these different strategies and you get it again and again and again, then you're certain. So what, what do we have now that we didn't have, you know, 20 years ago? We have hundreds of genes that have been manipulated, hundreds of proteins that have been manipulated that affect synaptic function and they affect learning and memory. Um, one of my favorite uh, uh, accidental discoveries was one that was a meta-study. You know, a study where you're not just looking at one thing, but you're actually putting together many studies that you have done and other people have done. Right. And we were just astounded a few years ago when we looked at all of the smart mice. Believe it or not, there's a bunch of mice that were genetically engineered, and now these mice are smarter than other mice, which is really interesting. So, you know, genetic changes make mice smarter. And then we ask, when we look at all of these smart mice, when we look in their brains, is there something consistent about the physiology of their brains? If indeed these changes in cell-cell communication are at the heart of memory, right. maybe we should see an enhancement of these changes in cell-cell communication. And the amazing thing is that we found them to a single mouse, meaning that essentially all of the mice that we put together in the literature, they were, they were smart smarter than other mice. Mutations that made them solve tasks faster, right. learn faster. These animals had enhancements in the very mechanism that we now know to be the, at the heart of learning and memory. And this was done by dozens of different labs. So there wasn't some sort of common you know, conspiracy sure. to bias the data. So now all the smart mice have just this type of change. No. This was actually, I didn't know that. Actually, when I asked myself, you know, before I started this meta study, what did I expect to find? What I and my colleagues did, because since then I've actually asked all my friends, you know, the people that contribute to, to, you know, to this data. Mm. I asked, what I thought is only about 30% of the mice that are really smart will have these enhancements in these mechanisms that regulate cell-cell right. interaction. I thought it was about, you know, 30% only, but it wasn't. It was nearly 100%. And this was a surprise to all of us. I don't think none of us expected this. But this just gives you a sense of the kinds of data that we have that, have, that allows me to sit here and tell you with a straight face <laughs> that we understand something truly important about how we learn and, and remember. Let me ask you two questions. Let me ask you, I want to know more about the smart mice. And I want, to, I want to know more about our, our current understanding of memory because I allowed you to drift sure. off that a little bit as well. Um, but let me just put this in a logical framework. So I understand if you're doing these experiments, if you're doing a meta study, if you're, if you're, if you're using these four criteria that you talked about before, um, you can certainly get a clear sense of necessity of causal agents. You can mm -hmm. get a sense of what's actually causing. Is, is A really causing B? Well, mm -hmm. we... We add A, we see what happens to B, we take away A, we don't touch A, we, we play around with B, otherwise we look independently and you're looking at it from all these, we, we, we iterate this all over the place, we do all these different types of experiments. But what about also this idea of, of, of sufficiency? So I've got necessity in terms of if I want this particular phenomenon to occur, I can get a clear sense that it, it's, 
every time I do this, then I'm going to get something else that's coming up. Maybe I've got it the other way around, actually. I should, I should, no, I, I should know I the think difference you between are, those two. You, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 you're <laughs> mentioning something very important, which is, you know, in science, uh, no, no, you are right on track. So in science, people talk about the necessity and, and, and sufficiency. But remember, memory, learning is at the heart of evolution. Evolution is about shaping creatures that can face a challenge and change their behavior so they're better equipped to face that challenge again. Right. That's the heart of evolution. So it's not surprising that 70% of all genes are expressed in the brain, and that probably a majority of those are involved in memory. So this is the thing that evolution has shaped us to do. Because it's so important. You know, yeah, because uh, you know, the problem that organisms have is that the world is ever-changing. Well, the problem we have is that the world is ever-changing. You know, when I, when I was a graduate student, we hardly used computers. I mean, think about that. Let me repeat that. Yeah. When I was a graduate student, and I'm not that old, you know? It wasn't like I was in the 1800s, right? That was just the other day. To me, it was just the other day. I mean, we hardly ever use computers. I first started using email when I was uh, a PI, when I was a principal investigator and, and had my own lab. That's when email came into being, right? I mean, the World Wide Web is, anyway, so the world keeps on changing. So this is nothing new. From the, the, you know, the beginning of time, from the dawn of time, the world has been changing at breakneck speed, and evolution is about can we adapt? Our ability to adapt depends on our ability to learn, remember, and change. Right. So it's hardly surprising that most of evolution has been geared towards fine-tuning this machine that allows us to survive. And so, uh, so going back to, uh, uh, to sufficiency, it's a hard question here because so much is involved in it. Literally, we have now hundreds of proteins yeah. that are involved in memory. I talk about you know, synaptic changes, right. changes between the communication between cells, but there's more that we have discovered. We don't have the same level of certainty that we have, but like for example, cells can have different degrees of excitability. They can, if, if I'm a cell and you're a cell and you send a signal to me, most of the times I don't listen actually. Cells are just like teenagers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they listen if you repeatedly tell them the same thing, but most of the times they don't. That's how cells in the brain are, you know? But, you know, but if I am more excitable, uh, if, if my excitability goes up because I have just been involved in a, in a memory event, then I listen far more likely than otherwise, you know? So something so is triggering, triggering that. Triggering somehow. changes in excitability that are critical for learning. We know that there are processes that constantly balance things in the brain, you know? If I'm a cell and I'm involved in learning, there's all these synaptic changes taking place around me. There are mechanisms that tone down my ability to be engaged right. so that I am not at the center of, of everything that happens. Because if I go away, if I happen to die, then there's a big hit in the brain. So you want to distribute information in, in, in a circuit. And let's say if it's spatial information in the, in the hippocampus, uh, you know, if it's emotion in, in the amygdala. So you, you, don't, you don't want one small group of, of cells to be engaged in an inordinate amount of, of memory. So what the brain has, the brain has mechanisms that balance things out, so-called homeostatic mechanisms. So I don't want to leave you the impression that it's all about changes in synapses. There's far more than that. Right. But the one thing for which we have overwhelming evidence for is that this machinery that regulates these synapses, these points of contact between brain cells, is really central to the whole process of learning and, and and remembering. So it seems to me there's also this issue, you alluded to it just now, about uh, you have some things that are located in different areas because it doesn't make sense 
uh, from an evolutionary perspective to have to use the whole brain all the time. On the other hand, you also want to have redundancy, presumably. That's right. right? So, so I can imagine these two things are sort of fighting against each other. These 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 two concepts. Anyway, let me let me go to the to the smart mouse. Let me be very specific. So you've got this mouse. Oh, the super. I, I am very sorry. Let me. No, no, no. So at ooh, is it four forty-five already? It 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 may be. Yeah. Oh sorry. my gosh. Um, it's a little bit of a problem. I have someone coming at five. Oh no. <laughs> but um, what we can do is the following. Can, can we pause and then? And then yes, we can. Can we do that? We That's can. Okay for you. That's, That's okay fine. For, that's okay for me. That's fine. Uh, bec I'm very sorry. No, I, no, thought, no, I thought we would be done by now. No, no, no. We're so. just getting started, man. <laughs> so, what makes these mice smart, particularly? What have you done to these guys that... Uh... So, yeah. So, it turns out that there is a number of mutations that target these mechanisms of memory. And uh, in memory, you have proteins that promote memory, that promote these changes in cell-cell communication and proteins that inhibit them. In any complex system, you always have red lights and green lights. You always have accelerators and brakes. It's part of the regulation of complex systems. And uh, of course, memory being probably one of the most complex systems we know, the same thing is true. There are things that promote it. There are things that inhibit it. Too much is not always a good thing, right? Uh, you know, remembering everything in this room will be of no use to you. Remembering the right things in this room may be of some use. So. In creating these smart mice, we, we, and this is the collective we, sure. myself and sure. all our friends in the field, what we have done is to uh, slow down the brakes on memory and uh, uh, enhance the accelerators of memory, if, if you will. So both types of things, taking the brakes off slightly and pressing the accelerators slightly, both of those things you know, result in mice that are smarter. Now, in evolution, would that have worked? Why didn't evolution make those mice to start with? Uh, that's a more complex question, which we really don't know. We don't know the price that those mutations that made them smart would have had if those animals were out there, you know, competing in, in the right. green world of nature. Right. You know. Um, <clears throat> Is there a limit, you think, to how, how smart you can make a mouse or I or think a so. I definitely think there is limits, and the limits are the physical constraints of the brain. You know, uh, smart takes in consideration lots of things. How many things can you hold in mind? Right. How many things can you remember? How many things can you act upon? Uh, you know, creativity can be seen figuratively as your ability to navigate a problem space, right? So, how quickly can you navigate it? How quickly can you get to that optimal point in the problem space that allows you? to come up with that critical insight that allows you to then solve this big problem that you have been facing you know, for some time. There are definitely limitations and uh, you know, part of the promise of understanding the human brain is that we may be able to find ways around these limitations. I mean, we had limitations in transportation, we found airplanes, right? right? So it wouldn't surprise me if uh, we will continue to develop you know, prosthetics that allow us to deal with the increasing complexity of the world around us. I mean, our cell phones are such prosthetics, right? right. We call on them to remember things that we more more. don't. Right. Uh, we call on them to remind us of appointments that we'll otherwise miss. Uh, so we have developed these prosthetics already, and I think that they will become more and more integrated. Back to smart mice, I think if we understand uh, how to tinker precisely 
with the biochemistry, with the molecular biology, the cell physiology of memory, we may be able to uh, call upon it when we most need it. How to precisely do that, that's a different question. In terms of behavior, in terms of what we even mean by smart mice, just tell me a little <laughs> what bit about do we mean? this. Because, yeah. because uh, my understanding is you, you have this experimental apparatus where you have uh, mice who can go down various different alleys sometimes and remember maybe where the cheese is or where the cheese isn't or where the cheese has been or, or something like this. I mean, what, what do you mean in terms of what we're measuring when, when we say this mouse is smarter than, than it used to be or than that mouse over there? That's right. So uh, just like we have ways of testing how smart we are, objectively, we also have ways to test how smart, quote-unquote, mice are. In terms of mice, as in our terms, it means how well do they do in different domains. Like, for example, let me uh, describe one, which is relevant to both us and mice. Um, if you come to LA, I've never been in LA, uh, I could set up a task to see how quickly you learn the lay of the land and how quickly you navigate to one of the landmarks that you have been exposed to. Some of us are very good at it, at spatial right. navigating, learning right. place, finding our way quickly to places we have been. Some of us are not as good at it. We get lost more easily. Aging, for example, uh, affects that. As we age, we don't spatially navigate as well. So mice are just the same. Uh, mice can perform quote-unquote spatial tasks, uh, navigate in, in environments that they learn and then uh, master, you know, to different degrees. Some animals take more training than others, just like us. We, you know, s you know, some of us go to a new city and we go around the neighborhood that we're going to be in, we get it. You know, we can navigate and go any place from any place. We're very good at that. Other people not. Mice are the same way. As mice age, they get worse at spatial navigation, just like we do, which right. is really quite interesting. That's just one example. I mean, another example is the ability to remember objects. You know, if I go to you and show you these two objects, you'll probably remember them. And if tomorrow I came to you and I said, which of these two objects did I show you yesterday? You'll probably say, oh, I remember the little statuette. So, uh, but maybe not. Maybe if I just picked them up and was playing with them nervously, uh, you may not even really pay attention to them. And, right. and if I were to ask you about those objects tomorrow, you may have difficulty recalling which ones did I play with, which ones were on the shelf, but I didn't play with. Right. That's actually a task that we give mice. We expose animals to you know, two different objects like this, and then the next day we expose them to two others. And how do we know whether they remember? Because mice are naturally curious. They go and spend more time with the novel objects. Why? Well, because if it's novel, it may be of interest. They may be able to eat it. They may be able to do something with it. <laughs> so you can gauge that quantitatively. I can tell. So, for example, um, an animal may spend 60% of their time with a new object versus 40% or 70 versus 30 or 80 versus 20 to different degrees. And this preference tells us about their memories. Of course, by itself, this will be sufficient because maybe animals like this object versus that one. Right. But there are ways to control for sure. that because we can ask when the objects are novel, do they show a natural preference to this one versus this one? Because sometimes animals have natural preferences. Right. But we can take that in, into consideration. You can have a long, long when number we are, of trials exactly, or whatever. You can do we can things. take that into consideration when we're judging memory. So just as we can judge memory in humans, we can judge memory in mice, just like this process is problematic in humans, it's also problematic in mice. In humans, this process is fraught with 
cultural problems, with social problems. In my side, other, so other, other problems. <laughs> well, they're not social and cultural problems, but you know, there are other problems. Uh, memory is something that you cannot see directly. You cannot look into someone's eyes and see how well they remember. All you can do with mice and people is ask them different types of things and then see. And of course, if they fail to answer, it could be memory, but it could be many other things unrelated you know, to memory. And that's the trick in mice. But when we get a consistent picture with multiple tasks, we can say with some confidence whether these animals right. do learn and remember better. Than and again, your sense of convergence. Of, of, it's of it's convergence. That's really it. Especially when you look across many different mice that supposedly have faster learning and, and better memories, and then you find that all of them share one physiological signature. Then hmm. you start to become more confident that you have your hands on something that's really important, that you really have your hands on, on memory and its physiological expressions. So my understanding is that you've actually been able to manipulate very well-defined memories with mice. Is that, is that correct, that you've been able to actually eliminate specific memories for, for mice of doing specific tasks or, or, or what? Yes, and that, so takes us to the, that. and that takes us with, to a subject that we were just you know, talking about a, a little while ago. This conversation started by you saying, well, Lashley uh, saw memory everywhere, but your right. studies have brought memory to specific cells right. in specific brain regions. Right. Yes, uh, one of the big problems in memory, it's not just remembering, right? As I said already, you know, there's no use for you to know all of the books in the shelf. Undoubtedly, you must have looked at them. Somewhere in your brain, there's already the titles of many of these books, but you're never going to remember it because it's utterly useless to you. So one important thing about memory is to hone in on things that are important. To prioritizing another, something. Yes. Another very important is to connect things. Because memories are hardly entities by themselves. They are entities on, on strings, on series of mm. events. One event being important to the other. Like, for example, if I were to pause for a second and ask you about uh, an important event in your life, the graduation from college, mm. you know, if you close your eyes and you think for a second about graduation from college, within seconds, another event comes to mind. And if you hone in on that event for a few seconds, another one comes to mind. So it's highly adaptive that these memories are not isolates, that right. they are part of strings, because they often, one, have to do with the other, you know? Right. So if I'm a mouse and I come into this new area where there's all these new foods, right? So I want to remember what brought me there, the time of, of year that, this was, that I found this new food there, and everything else that happened around it because this may be information that will help me to predict in the future where I'm likely to find food. Now, what does, the, what does this have to do with the placing of memory? Oh. That's essentially what I'm trying to get to. It turns out that what we have been able to do is to figure out some of the mechanisms that determine which cells are encoding which memory and why. And by manipulating these cells, we can ahead of time bias the memory to those cells. So we understand what gets information where in the brain, and by understanding it, then we can change the brain so that information goes to specific cells in the brain. Now, 
if we have methods of inactivating those cells, then we have methods of inactivating very specific memories. So you know. the only and that's what we have done. The only reason I find any of this remotely believable <laughs> is because you've done it. <laughs> I mean, quite frankly, I mean, if 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 we were having this conversation and I would have no no particular faith that you've actually done this, I'd just say you were crazy. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, the difference between being crazy and being a scientist often is very... Actually, you know what the difference is? The difference is publications. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, we have the stuff published, you know, it yeah. demonstrates we have done it. But I know some of this stuff, even to me, yeah. it sounds... Uh... <laughs> so, so where is this in... in I mean, when you were talking uh, uh, about this idea of thinking about your graduation, then you think of another memory, then you think mm -hmm. of another memory, and, and this idea of, of triggers, of, mm -hmm. of somehow, uh, we all have this subjectively, we know we focus on something and all of a sudden different things come, or we, we, we smell something that mm -hmm. we haven't smelled uh, in a while and we get this flood of memories. And the obvious question is, where were these things? Where, you know, where were they before all of a sudden they were being triggered, or, or, or yeah. how were they, or whatever, whatever that is. And the idea that you're actually able to at, to some, at, at some concrete level, at least for mice in some specific areas, be able to isolate that with such precision is just completely astounding to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this demonstrates that we've learned something about memory Certainly to the point like that we can manipulate it in very precise ways. Now, I may be overselling this a bit, I must tell you. And the reason I'm overselling it is because we cannot locate any memory. Sure. What we can do... I don't think you ever promised that. Well, you know, but maybe your, your viewers uh, may have misunderstood we me, and I just want to make sure... We viewers. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I know, know. <laughs> but I am not so clear at explaining things, so that's, I'm sure they are, you know, very sophisticated and very smart. But this is about the teller of the tale. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And in essence, what I, what I don't want people to think is that we can go like in the... What was that movie... The, Inception, I think. Is there, is no, it, it was it was a movie where you know someone was unhappy about it about their past lives, and you went in into that person's brain and deleted specific memories. Now we can. Schwarzenegger must have been in it somewhere. Son. Uh, oh, anyway, it, it escapes me. See, my own memory is not so good. Of course not. I should. I, you're not I, working on that right now. I should you're remember right. that. I should remember the title of that movie. Something, the sunshine of the mind, or something. Oh so, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you'll come to me. You'll come to me, but this is a movie where, you know, a key part of the plot was the ability to go in and delete m memories that may be traumatic, not useful to us anymore. Now, we are not at the point where we can go into a mouse and targe target any memory that we have given the mouse. Sure. What we can do, which is actually a step in that direction, and it, it just illustrates that we understand how these memories are being formed and how they're being allocated to specific cells, how they're getting to certain cells but not others, is the fact that we can change those cells uh, and then dramatically change the probability that they will be involved in memory. And then later on, because we can inactivate them, we can get them out of the picture once we're asking the animal to recall them. So that way, we can determine ahead of time where those memories will end up that we are giving the animals, and then ahead of time, we can turn off precisely those cells and inactivate those memories, but not others. Actually, in one of our experiments, which is still a favorite of mine, we published it recently, the last you know, few years, we have given the animals two memories. One, that a salty substance uh, is not so good because it made them slightly sick. 
you know, we've all had this experience going to a restaurant, we, we eat a new food that we've never eaten before, and then our stomachs are queasy and then we avoid that restaurant. Right. Mice are the same. Well, they don't go to restaurants, but they sure. get queasy after foods and then they avoid them. Okay. So, and we also uh, gave them a memory that uh, a tone is to be avoided because when they heard that tone, you know, they got a buzz. Right. Okay. So, what we did then is to change the, the physiology of the brain in such a way that we determine where one of these two memories went to in the brain, but not the other. The other, we just let it go in the brain normally, but for one of them, we funnel it to a subset of cells in a structure of the brain called the amygdala, which handles emotions. So the amygdala cares whether a food makes you slightly nauseous or whether you want to avoid a tone because you perceive it as dangerous. Right. Okay? And what we have been able to, you know, to do in that paper that's published is to get rid of one memory but not the other. So we can you know, manipulate memory in animals and selectively inactivate one memory, not the other. And then we let the animal recover, and then that memory is back again. So we can literally turn the switch on and off on memories now. So how long does it take, tools does it take for the designed. memory to, to come back? How, how? It depends on how you inactivate them. Because remember, one part of this is that you funnel memories into a subset of, of, of neurons. Right. Another part of this is that you then turn on and off those neurons. So there are ways in which you turn them off, that they're off for some time, hours, there are ways in which they're off just for minutes, literally, or seconds even, you know. So we can use light now um, to inactivate neurons. So if those neurons have the memory that we're testing the animals on, when the light is on, the animals can't remember. The light goes off, boom, and the memory comes back. And we can do something else, which is we can also use light to do the opposite, to turn those neurons on. Mm -hmm. So what we can do and have done is to, you know, turn on the light, and the animals recall. How do we know that the animals recall? Because they act as if they are seeing that stimulus that they learned about. We turned off the light, and it's gone. So, anyway. Okay, <laughs> all right. Hold on. Uh, one other Maybe thing. I spoke too, yeah. No, 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 you're doing great. It's just I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around all this stuff, but, but, uh, but a specific question. So, the idea that <laughs> uh, my course understanding, you take this memory and somehow you channel it into a specific set of neurons. Yeah. And then you can manipulate those neurons. I'm okay once you're manipulating the neurons, whether uh -huh. you're doing it with light or whatever uh -huh. it is. Uh, this strikes me as the realm of the conceivable, yes. the feasible. It's taking that memory and channeling it into a specific, into a specific set neurons. of neurons that I just, I don't know what the heck is going on. How, how does, how does describe that, that process? That's that? right. So this process has to do with the process of how we link to memories. So let me explain the process of how we link to memories, our understanding of it, and then I can tell you how we funnel memories to a subset of neurons. So let's say that when you, you got early on, you know, today to UCLA and you looked at this building, and you, oh, that's the place where, where the Silver Lab is, right? right? And then a, f a few hours later, we actually met, right? So now you have the memory of the Gunda building, and our conversation linked in your mind. How are these two events linked in your mind? What happened that linked them? What we now know from a lot of evidence that's convergent is that, well, we don't, we don't know this about people, we know this about mice and we extrapolate from right. mice to people, but right. what we think is going on 
is that when you saw the building, a subset of neurons in your hippocampus, let's say, which is a part of the brain that cares about such things, landmarks and spatial navigation. Uh, so a, a subset of neurons in your hippocampus was activated. When those neurons were activated, they made a molecule called CREB. The name doesn't matter. Right. It's just a molecule. And that molecule directs the synthesis of other molecules in the brain. Right. So it's a protein that directs what we call transcription. Genes express RNA. RNA then is turned into proteins. So this molecule yeah. tells the nucleus of the cell which genes to express. One of the sets of genes that this molecule tells the nucleus to express once you create a memory is a set of proteins, a set of genes that then are turned to RNA and RNA into protein, that increase the excitability of these neurons. What does that mean, increase the excitability? It makes them easy to fire. We right. spoke briefly right, right, about right. this already, right? That's so the opposite we, of inhibition. Uh, it, that's right. Like, it just makes them easier to fire. So right. they need less stimulation to come online, right. okay? So now you have a set of neurons that has the memory of this building, and these neurons will fire more easily than others, okay? So now you walk into my office, we start talking, another sus subset of neurons in your hippocampus too. Because you, you, your hippocampus cares not only about spatial things, but it cares also about memories that you remember consciously. This conversation has a lot of semantic you know, content, right. a lot of episodic content. Ep episodes are like little movies we take of right. the world. So your hippocampus is being activated up again. And very likely those neurons that are easy to activate will be engaged in storing information about our conversation. So now you have the same neurons, of course, different points of contact in those neurons. So were they primed at some level? Because they were of that, primed, that exactly right. That's a much better explanation, primed. So the first memory primed them to be receptive for the second memory because they, they are activated more easily. So now you have two memories and they have a set of neurons in common. So what does this mean to you? In the future, if you think of our conversation, you will think, think of, the of the Gander building. Right. You won't think of the science building at Stanford or you know, one of the buildings at, at MIT that you were before having conversations like this one about a different subject. So you won't confuse the two. And it's adaptive to know that this took place in the Gander building in case you need this information, you have it, versus having to really link this forcefully across the many buildings you visit in your lifetime and many hundreds of conversations, thousands, that you've had with a bunch of people. So that's... And these neurons are in the hip, hippocampus, though. They these are. These particular yeah. neurons are there. So why, so why is it that this other guy, Lasky, or is it Lasky? <laughs> uh, why is it that when he was... Uh, and again, we're talking mice, I understand, but we're extrapolating rats. to... Mice and rats, exactly, sorry, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. Just a few billion yeah. years of evolution uh, or whatever it is. Million yeah. years of evolution. <laughs> Rodents. <laughs> right. Rodents. Things with tails. Yes. But... Uh, but my understanding is he was he was going through and slicing here and slicing there, and it didn't seem to make any real difference where the, where where things were located. So, but the, you're telling me hippocampus. That's and right. Before that, I was thinking. So, what was he doing wrong, or what are you doing no, right, or, or what's the way to look at it? It's not a question of doing something right or wrong. His experiments are were right on. It's the interpretation that was a little misled by the type of experiments he was doing. You know, okay. Lashley was asking these rats something that required lots of brain regions, okay? Oh, I see. And because it wasn't enough, it, it, just because it wasn't specialized enough, the animal could use multiple strategies to 
do well on those tasks. Right. So when Lashley got rid of one part of the brain, there was another strategy. Another somewhere. strategy, okay. in, in, you know, came up. By the way, that's a general feature of brain, which is for most things that we learn, the vast majority of things that we learn, because we're not just learning one thing; we're learning many things related to this one thing that we're learning. If we have a slight handicap or one thing, another part of the brain makes up for it. So when Lashley was making very small lesions or sometimes larger lesions of the brain, the animals were able to use other brain regions and compensate. So Lashley developed this idea that memories are anywhere, but they're everywhere in the brain. And in a way, this idea is somewhat correct because I speak of the hippocampus, right? So we were talking about a specific brain region. But if you were to use brain imaging to look at what regions in, in my brain are active when I'm finding my way to the kind of building in the morning, okay, it wouldn't just be the hippocampus. Right. Uh, at the same time, I may, think, I may be thinking about what I'm about to do, and I may be thinking about what I did yesterday, and I may be, uh, well, I would be walking, for example, and I need you know, control over coordination sure. over my muscles. So you would see my... Your brain's active all over the place. You would see, you know, my cerebellum, the back of my head active because I need to coordinate my movements. You would see my, the, the, you know, very in, in front of my head active because I'm, I'll be planning these movements and my trip, you know, to my office. Uh, you would see many cortical areas active because I will be looking at landmarks that tell my brain what I am, you know. So there'll be a lot of brain active. And the question is, which of all these regions is critical for my ability to remember where my office is? See, that's a tricky question because that means you have to do lots of control experiments. Right. No one experiment is going to tell you that. So Lashley was at the, at the very beginning of the efforts to understand you know, the brain. And what he noticed is that he, he made lesions everywhere and it seemed that many of them just decreased performance a bit but didn't get rid of the memory. So we concluded, and actually somewhat correctly, that the memory is not anywhere, right? But what we now know is that there are certain parts of the brain that are really critical for specific types of information. Although a lot of the brain may be active, there's certain parts that if we mock with them, then we really affect that memory. You know, for, you know, for example, we're talking about spatial navigation, right? right? And I was saying that many areas of the brain are involved in spatial navigation. We know this, right? But if you go and you make small lesions in an area called the hippocampus that we talked about already several times, our ability to do spatial navigation tasks decreases dramatically. Mice's ability to do spatial navigation tasks decreases dramatically. Rats' ability and so on and so forth. Monkey's ability to do spatial navigation. So it seems that spatial navigation really needs this area called the hippocampus. Although it involves many other brain regions, and if you do lesions in, this, in some of these other areas, you get a slow, a small, relatively, you know, compared to the hippocampus, you know, decrease in spatial navigation. But when you hit the hippocampus, then you get a big bang, yeah. you know, you get a big loss. And the same argument can be made for other, like, for example, working memory, our ability for me to remember what you just told me and give an appropriate answer that, you know, like a sketch pad of what you've just said so that I can formulate an answer. The prefrontal cortex is critical. Right. You know, if I have a deficit there, I, I cannot do that. Emotions, you know, the amygdala is, cri is critical, so on and so forth. You know, movement, my cerebellum is critical, and so on. So, so there's, there's a little yeah. bit of redundancy, but there's clearly lots of I mean, specialization. Area, specialization. Absolutely, there is specialization. Yeah. I, 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 I'm excited to move on to uh, cognitive deficits and uh, cognitive 
disorders and, and, and how one actually addresses those and how one treats those. But right before I do, there's one question which has also occurred to me. We've been talking about mice for the mm -hmm. most part, and we've been talking about extrapolating mm -hmm. these arguments and this understanding and, and these results from mm -hmm. mice, at least in principle and concept, mm -hmm. to, to humans. Is there anything that we know doesn't map? Is there yes, anything that we that know is. is just not, doesn't matter about that mice? That is, absolutely. I mean, the human brain is far more complex than the mouse brain. All we can study and learn from mice are the fundamental principles, right? Right, but I, I mean, can imagine that you have a really complex brain, the human brain here and the mouse brain, and everything maps here, but there's a lot more other stuff. It's like a, you know, yes, it's an into map. That's true. Of, it, it, or, or are there things that just don't map somehow, that, yeah, we learned this about the mouse brain, but it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't correspond to anything in the human brain? It turns out that answering that question is complicated. And the reason why it's complicated is because there is so much heterogeneity between human brains. Right. So I'll give you one precise example. Lately in the news, there is, if you look, there's a few reports saying that we have invested quite a bit of, of money and energy and time on understanding mice and treating disorders in mice. But sometimes what we find in mice when we test in clinical trials in humans just doesn't work. Okay. Now, this is a real concern, uh, one that I don't share, actually, maybe because I'm not entirely objective on, on this note since I've spent so much of my life but working on mice. You're also expert, but, so I mean... Yes, that, you know, that's right. But I, I just want to start with a qualifier that I, I'm biased, yeah. you know, because I've worked on this. This is my livelihood, and I've spent a great deal of my life invested on this. But it is the case, it's a fact, that some treatments developed in mice have not been shown to work in humans. Okay. So, from a superficial perspective, you could simply say, wait a second, this doesn't work. We are investing so much in mice, and we're not seeing the same treatments working in humans. From a superficial perspective. But when you look more carefully into this, what do we see? We see that the process of testing drugs on anything that's brain-related, cognition, emotion, schizophrenia, autism, any of these complex you know, brain problems, is fraught with all sorts of problems. The tasks that we have, our measures of whether there is improvement or not, are poor, right. you know, to say the least, at, at this point. And then you have this heterogeneity between humans. We know in psychiatry and, and, and in neurology, in, we know in mental health in general, that uh, drugs that work on one patient don't work on others. The best that we have is that drugs work in about 20-30% of patients, right? And, and ask yourself, why is that? Why is it that we have an antipsychotic that works on this, you know, schizophrenic incredibly well, so all of these abnormal behaviors go away when I take it. After I take it for a few weeks, I get better. And why is it that the same antipsychotic does not work on 80% of other patients? You know, why? I mean, you know, there are complex answers to this question, but one of which is the heterogeneity of, of the human brain. Right. You and I share many genes in common, but we share many genes that are different. You know, if you look at the structure of our two brains, they, it will be different, sure. yours and mine. Sure. And these differences make a, a big impact on whether you will react well to a treatment and I won't. You know, whether I will be able to do X and Y and you will be able to do Z and W. And I think that when you 
are asking a question, how much of what we are learning from animal models, from mice, from rats, from monkeys, from flies, from worms, how much of this applies to humans, uh, there isn't an easy, straightforward answer. Right. One thing we know, and I've mentioned already in our conversation, which is there is a tremendous evolutionary conservation. That's undeniable. The data is overwhelming. You know, you know, neurons in C. elegans have some of the same properties. C. elegans is a little warm. Right. Okay? You, know, you know, neurons in these little worms have the same, some of the same properties as, as neurons in human brain. Right? Some of the same brain regions are there in mice and humans. Many of the genes are exactly identical. But just that, like there is heterogeneity between human beings, and whether they react to drugs, on what behaviors they express, of course there is a great deal of difference between mice and humans. So it's not surprising that some of the things we discover in mice we don't find in humans. By the way, mice are not just one thing either. We think sure. of them as just one thing, but they are not. Mice are many things, because just like we have Europeans and Asians and Africans, mice, we have different strains with very big differences, you know, genetically. So we develop a treatment in one strain. And won't necessarily work. Apply to other strains of mice. Yeah. Because of this heterogeneity, this richness in biology that allows evolution to face an ever-changing world, but it goes against us when we are trying to develop a treatment that we so dearly need. Mm -hmm. So it's hardly surprising that some of the things that work in mice don't work in humans because most things that work in humans don't work in humans. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, or, or. so it's, again, it's a, but okay, taking the hard version of this, is it the case that sometimes mice mislead us? Absolutely. There are differences in, in the biology. But as scientists, these are not fundamental problems. These are actually reflect the richness of the systems that we use. You know, and these differences sometimes highlight what's important, right? So, right now we uh, are facing a struggle to optimize the process that takes us from understanding of the brain to treating and curing the brain. Uh, do we know what works and when? No, but we already have some things that do work, and that I can say with confidence. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, I watched, as I mentioned to you, this uh, this video that you that you did, which I would wholeheartedly recommend everybody watches, um, about this particular treatment um, dealing with this uh, this gene NF1. Let me know when I'm saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And there were two things about it which which struck me as as remarkable. One was just the entire story that I'd like you to recapitulate a little bit. Um, but the other was the, the, the basic structure of what you were saying. The fundamental point that when you look at neurodevelopmental uh, disorders or, or, or neurodevelopmental conditions, when, when brains are developing and they don't develop as, as we hope they would or as they would normally do, um, the notion that the, the causal agents for that, the genes or what have you, that are responsible for that uh, lack of appropriate uh, development um, are somehow still present and still active in some form with the adult developed brain. And, and this notion that you can have a brain which has developed and has uh, not developed uh, as well as it would ordinarily have done, and yet there's still something that you can do with that. And, and that's, yeah. a, that's something which is deeply, deeply counterintuitive 
to, I think, most people, you think, wow, this uh, developmental disorder, and that's obviously horrible, it's tragic. Um, but once somebody has a fully developed brain, that's it. That's their brain, and that's all you can do. And, and the message seems to be, no, actually, that's just simply not true based upon our research, meaning yours, <laughs> that, um, uh, that, that you, can, you can do things primarily because, as I understand it, that the same agent that was responsible for this development is still plays some active role, and you can get in there and modulate or affect or somehow... Uh, somehow change things in a fundamental way. And, and that overarching message is, is obviously inspirational and, 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 and one riddled with optimism for anybody who knows someone or who is involved with aspects of developmental disorders, but is, is equally optimistic for people who might be worried about maybe natural evolution, such as aging and the processes that are involved there. I mean, this, this seems to open up a whole new window of possibilities for the future. And that's, to me, that's deeply, uh, that, that's, that's very impressive and, and very positive. Thank you, thank you. You know, I, one, of the, one of the happiest days of, of my life was when we first demonstrated that we could reverse the cognitive deficits, the learning and memory deficits of an animal model of neurofibromatosis type 1 in the adult. Mm. So, as you so well indicated, uh, there was a tremendous bias prior to 2000. We're talking about the 90s, 80s, and 90s, and so on, that for this large class of disorders that affects development, and there's all sorts of evidence that there's a large class of disorders that, that uh, has its origins in development, schizophrenia, autism, right. intellectual disability, um, a lot of evidence that the genes that cause them, they act initially during development, and then when you look in those brains, a lot of evidence that they don't look like other brains that don't have those problems, autism, schizophrenia, uh, intellectual disabilities, etc. And there was this well-understood uh, bias that if we can't address this problem in development, by the time we have an adult that comes to a medical office and say, look, help me, I don't learn the same way, I can't pass my classes, you know, there's a big problem here. Or a parent with a child that uh, has clear, obvious intellectual problems or behavioral problems, right? And uh, that bias, that it's all about development, that we won't be able to do anything in the adult, was so deeply uh, in, in, in neuroscience that we designed the experiments to test it. Uh, and we had to design these experiments multiple times because no one was willing to even try this. People thought, it's crazy. Why would we do this? This doesn't make any sense. And the first experiment in our lab was done by an undergraduate, actually. Naive and willing. <laughs> Perfect. So there is a reason for undergraduate. Absolutely. And we had these animals, and there was a drug that was targeted at the biochemistry that this gene you know, mediated. And it was unbelievable. Uh, we ran this experiment enough times, and we became convinced that we could uh, reverse these deficits. And, uh, and this work, of course, was fueled by you know, more advanced scientists in the lab, you know, people like Rui Costa, uh, when he was in, in my lab, that spent a great deal of time looking at this problem systematically and very carefully. And what Rui published in Nature in the early 2000s was that for neurofibromatosis type 1, we can intervene in the adult and essentially reverse 
the learning and memory deficits that this, uh, that this animal showed. And that was a great day. <laughs> because what we saw, not only the impact to, this, you know, to these patients, one in 3,000 people worldwide have neurofibromatosis type 1. Half of these people have learning problems, some severe, some not. Uh, and uh, what Rui's results demonstrated for the first time is that we will be able to intervene and help these people. And they also demonstrated something that we should have known already, which is there's a tremendous amount of flexibility and plasticity in the human brain, you know. But we, have, we systematically underestimate this tremendous resourcefulness of the human brain in recovering and repairing itself, if you will, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, the brain is not a Newtonian machine. And by Newtonian machine, I, I mean, you know, one, one lever triggering another, right. and another lever triggering another. The brain is highly dynamic, you know. And if we, if we just help it to restore some of its functionality, not all of it, but some of it, the results can be nothing short of magic. And in this case, the results meant animals that were unable to learn very well, to spatially navigate, and to interact with their environments in ways like other animals learn, and after addressing the biochemistry that was affected in the adults, not in development, we didn't right. touch it in development, just in the adults with right. the drug, we were able to reverse these deficits. Right. And, uh, and uh, then after our study in Atrium, you know, several other labs, that uh, some of which were doing results more or less in parallel, but a couple of years later, and then in the decade that followed, published dozens of examples like this. Neurodevelopmental disorders that we were convinced were all about development nothing to do with the, with the adult brain, and then intervening in the adult brain and showing remarkable improvements. Uh, so this has been one of the really important things that we found with the greatest human impact. Uh, because as you said, it opened the door to the possibility of treating literally hundreds of millions of people worldwide mm. with problems that we never thought we would have a chance of even touching. Mm. You know, so... Um, it's a long road, but it's one that we have started, uh, not just my lab, but many other labs, and, uh, and it's one for which there is some early hopeful signs that we may be on the right track. So, so it's, as I said, it's tremendously optimistic and, and it's, it's really uh, a game changer, as they would say, to, to revert to cliches. But I want to I wanna point out a couple of structural things that I picked up, at least from your talk, because I think that's also very important, the way, the way you, you label the different stages, because presumably these are things which uh, might be characteristic of a whole set of different experimental techniques or attempts mm -hmm. to, to be doing these sorts of things independent of this particular condition. These are structural issues, and I know you care about structural issues. You've written a whole book about structural issues as well. But... Um, so let me see if I, if I got this right. So you point out four different levels uh, in terms of treatment of some of these conditions. The first one is to identify which particular gene or causal agent is actually at work. Um, the second one is then to say what sort of animal models do we actually have mm -hmm. to be able to, I guess, test these ideas and to be able to get some representative sample uh, from a the shadow world, as it were, since we're interested in humans at some point, but obviously we're starting, mm -hmm. starting with the animals. 
Then you're, you're, you're looking at, or maybe even uh, simultaneously, you're looking at the molecular causal mechanisms of what's actually going on. So you've identified one thing, but then how does that actually manifest itself? What's the causal chain that you're, you're getting to? And then at the end of the day, once you have that information, you're looking for some concrete measure of treatment. And in, and in your talk, you, you're very, very clear about all of these different levels and the different stages that, that arise. Um, is that something that, that, that you think is fairly, fairly standard division, that, that your colleagues and peers across the field are, would, would use those characteristic four stages to be able to adapt a whole possible... Uh, solutions to a whole range of cognitive disorders? You know, it, it really depends on the type of cognitive disorder, right? But let's say, let's talk about memory, for example, right? right. Uh, you know, the general domain of working memory, memory in general. It is true that one subset of these disorders that afflict memory in patients is clearly genetic. Others have a genetic you know, component, but they have other components, uh, environmental uh, insults, for example, right? right. Uh, alcohol abuse, you know, there's a number of other things that can affect memory that don't really have to do directly, immediately sure. with genes. Genes are playing a role, but not a direct, sure. a direct role. If we talk about genetic disorders, you know, as just as one concrete example, then um, the hope is that if we understand what goes wrong when this gene is changed, when this gene is absent, for example. If we understand with clarity the cellular changes, the systems changes, and how they are accounting for the behavioral changes in an animal model, a mouse, a rat, a monkey, then we can better design treatments, well, drugs, but not just drugs. You know, Treatments for memory will probably involve more than just drugs. And behavioral things you know, or behaviorals. techniques or whatever. I mean, you, you can imagine uh, going into an individual that's a teenager, right? That, has, that is behind in school, that has an IQ of equivalent to a seven-year-old, for example. You know, half of its age. And then magically treat the brain mechanisms that are involved in learning and memory, that individual wouldn't be instantaneously a normal teenager because there's all this learning, all Absolutely. this socialization. You know, we are such sophisticated animals. We are, you know, we are learning constantly, right? So our social interactions, the, our knowledge of the world, our right. knowledge of, edu of what we need to, to go up in the educational system and be, become professionals, right? So there will be... Um, much that needs to be done to those individuals to help them catch up. Sure. Even if you could change the theoretical potential, that's right. I would still. I mean, imagine you know. Let's say you don't have the memory chips in, in your computer, right? Right. In order for your computer to be equivalent to what you are currently using, let's say for a computer, you need to have all those files. You need to have all those programs. Right. You know, it's a lot of work to transfer stuff from one computer to the other. In a way, we can use that image, although it's not you know terribly. <laughs> enlightened, but you can use that image in terms of the human brain because you, you restore the machinery, but you haven't restored all the software, all of the memories that allow us to function as independent human beings. So that will need to be done. So I, what I'm saying is that understanding the, the biochemistry allow us to treat it in ways that we may not be able to do any other way. Right. So are these stages standard? 
nothing is standard in science. You know, science is about, about violating standards, are but, they, but they generally do, they, do, they, do they capture yeah. a general research program? Absolutely. And the research program is, let's find the genes that affect memory, disrupt memory in humans. Let's then mimic those changes, those genetic changes in cell lines, in mice, in rats, in C. elegans, in Drosophila, anything that is useful for us to understand those genes. Let's figure out what's wrong there. Then let's find appropriate models to see if we can reverse it as a preamble for what we want to do in humans, which is bring these drugs in humans. Often, you know, there's a price to use these drugs, and there's no such thing as a safe drug. Aspirin, people die from aspirin all the time, right? So there's no such thing as a safe drug. Safety is a relative thing. So before we can bring this into human trials, before we can give this to our children, we need to get, get a sense for how safe these treatments are. Right, because we don't want to make things worse. Yeah. The last thing we want is to take a population that's already affected and make things worse. So that's why one of these stages that you mentioned is try these things out in animals, because we'll rather hurt animals. We don't want to hurt animals, but, sure. but we'll rather hurt animals than our children, and then bring this once this is ready, once this is mature enough, into clinical trials, so that we can test its efficacy uh, in patients. So. Are there variants on this? Of course, as many as, as there are scientists. But is this a common core of what many labs are trying to do? Absolutely. One of the, one of I think the, the note, more noteworthy. Let me start that again. Uh, one of the intriguing aspects of the, the talk that I heard you give on this subject was. Um, this notion of the balance, again, between inhibitory and excitatory uh, activity in the brain, and this notion that through um, a proposed solution to address somebody who had a, a cognitive deficit so that this was out of balance, they had more inhibition, uh, or one could imagine other conditions where they had more excitation or whatever, mm -hmm. the, the mechanism that would be proposed to remedy this would... Uh, might work very well for them, but for people who were already in balance, it would be very detrimental to them. And uh, that shows, I think, perhaps two things, maybe more, but from my perspective, it shows the fact that you have to be uh, extremely careful about how you, how you would give any proposed medication, because unless these people suffer from exactly that particular strain or aspect of it, you, you might be doing more harm than good. And it shows the, again, the amount of complexity involved in all of these different conditions, that there's so Absolutely. many different symptoms that are all over the place, and, and, and the amount of work involved on, on, on everyone's part to make sure that you have a clear, detailed picture of, of what's going on, because, because uh, you know, it's not just like one miracle drug we can give people and everybody will, will exactly do this right. or that. That's exactly right. I mean, it's not uncommon in medicine that a drug that helps one you know, group of patients on a subset of those patients actually makes things a little worse. And, and that's why you know, clinicians are very attentive to this possibility and follow patients in the early stages of developing these treatments. Because again, for the same reason that I've talked about our heterogeneity, we are very different as human beings, you and I and everybody else. So there's that component. Now, in mice, when we were developing the, the treatment for neurofibromatosis type 1, we went way out of our way to find a treatment that did not make the normal mice worse. A treatment that helped the mice with the mutation that mimicked 
neopharmatosis type 1, but that did not make the normal mice measurably worse. Why? Because we reason that if we found such a treatment, then the chances of causing harm once we bring this into humans will be decreased. They won't be eliminated by no sure, means, but sure. they'll be decreased. And indeed, the treatment that we developed in mice, for the most part, it has that property, actually. And so what we find, as you explained so well, is that in these animals, there's an imbalance between excitation and inhibition. The inhibitory systems in the brain were abnormally high. And as a result, the kids with neurofimatosis, not all of them, some kids are perfectly normal with neurofimatosis, but about 30% of the kids, a little, bit, a little bit more perhaps, have problems with learning. But if we interact with these children, with additional training, they learn. So the, the brakes are on, but if you press the accelerator gently, you sort of can overcome that. The system is not optimized, but you can overcome it. In mice, it's the same way. You, you know, the brakes are on, a little tight in mice, and, but when you work with the mice, they learn. Just like when you work with the kids, yeah. you, 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 they also learn. And what we found is that the drug that released some of this inhibition, so allowing us to teach the mice faster, so they learn now just like you know, the normal mice, that same drug at that same concentration did not seem to cause deficits in most tasks that we, hmm. we asked the mice. In some tasks, it did, actually, which is interesting. Some tasks did, but in the majority of them, it didn't. And that <coughs> gave us a great deal of, of, uh, of, uh, of peace that we would not cause harm first and not, and not benefit. And by and large, what the clinical trials that followed have shown is exactly that, that the, the drug that we showed in mice to be so useful, uh, although we don't, you know, the jury's still out whether this drug will work in humans. But the, 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 the trials that we've gotten back so far clearly show that they've not hurt. And uh, now, is this always the case? Of course not. Of course not. But in, in, this, in this case, it, it was the, it, <coughs> I still remember actually in this very office, uh, a student of mine, I, I wish I could take credit for that discovery, <laughs> but, I, but I can't, Steve Kushner, this very office, I was here late at night, and he comes into the door, and he says, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've been doing my you know, rotations in internal medicine, and, and I found that this drug, which uh, was statins, actually, that this drug, at concentrations that are quite benign, can act to reverse the biochemistry that we have discovered in the lab is behind the learning deficits in the mice. Honestly, I did not believe him. <laughs> and, and the reason I didn't believe him was because um, I, you know, I saw the impact of this. If this drug, statins, which people take because of high cholesterol, if this drug is having an, an impact on an F1, how many other proteins this drug is having an impact on? Because potentially that drug would have an impact on 20% of all proteins in the body. And I reason, wait a second, if it's really having an impact the way you, you think about it, Stephen, well, yeah, if, if, if you're disrupting, because, well, in NF1, you'll be helping. But if More I have normal NF1, you'll be disrupting it. So if you're disrupting 20% of all proteins in the body, you, this, this drug will probably be the most powerful poison ever known. <laughs> but the magic that I didn't predict is that the drug would reverse the deficit of the mutants at concentrations that did not touch the controls at all. Mm. 
Had the drug touched the controls, it would have killed all of the mice that we tested. It would have killed all the humans that take statins. Because you see, statins control the levels of these little fats. And these little fats, when added to molecules, allow these molecules to be by the membrane. Imagine you know, the membrane to be like my hand. And imagine this part of, of my hand is a molecule that's critical in the learning deficits. This little fat here allows the molecule to be at the membrane like this. Okay, and what Steve Genius told them, uh, really is an incredibly bright guy, he now runs you know, psychiatry in Rotterdam, one of the biggest hospitals in Europe. And, uh, and what Steve uh, realized is that he could get rid of this lipid group by taking statins, and now the RAS will go away from the membrane. And because the problem to start with is too much RAS at the membrane, he will be able to fix the problem. My problem is, wait a second, if you are taking RAS away from the membrane, what about all the other proteins that right. also have the same little fat group right. that they will be taken away from right. the membrane and then you just kill everybody? Right. Clearly, this can't be working like that. So? But what I didn't realize is that the levels of the drug that take the RAS away from the membrane, they do not affect all the other proteins that use these little lipid groups to be at the membrane. And the reason for that is that there's too much of RAS in the membrane. So if you decrease these little fat groups, the one that gets affected first it's is the, the RAS. Yeah. The other ones are not terribly affected. So and it's you, a question of scale. You have exactly. To get exactly and, right. this is, and this is what allowed this to work. And thank God that I didn't tell Steve, this is a horrible, stupid idea. Why are you bugging <laughs> me? I want to go home. It's 11 o'clock at night. Instead, I, thank God, this is the only credit I can claim. Instead, I listened to him. <laughs> Thinking inside of me that I, there was no doubt that this was not going to work, but he was so enthusiastic, I'm, I was not going to pop his bubble. You see, <laughs> one of the biggest limiting things in science is the enthusiasm and the force behind an idea. My experience has told me that anytime there's someone as bright as Stephen with all that energy behind an idea, let him go because something good is going to come out of it. And that's the only credit I can, I can claim for that discovery. Everything else was Stephen and Wei Dong Li, which together, the two of them, they paired up and they showed that in mice, you could use statins to reverse the molecular deficits, the cellular deficits, and more importantly, of course, the behavioral deficits in neurofibromatosis type 1 mice. And that was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. The, the behavioral deficits, there was attention and, and planning, but you also mentioned some other behavioral deficits. There's yeah. something about vocabulary, spatial reasoning, all these That's other right. Things. So the, the kinds of deficits that we could capture in mice that some NF1 patients, some neurofibromatosis type 1 patients have, again, not every patient with right, neurofibromatosis sure. have this deficit, only a subset of them, about 30-40%. But you see problems in memory, you see problems in spatial navigation, you see problems in attention, you see problems in motor coordination, and by and large, the statins were able to treat all of these problems in mice. But of course, there are problems that you see in patients that we could model in mice. Reading skills, for example, sure. you know, vocabulary. Well, even with the really smart mice. Oh, oh, even with the real <laughs> smart mice. You know, we were hoping to, you know, to discover one morning them reciting Shakespeare, but you know we keep looking every morning. Yeah, well, but they haven't started yet. Maybe they do it one, you know, when, when we're really, not looking. They're really smart. Exactly. <laughs> you know, who knows if we start reading Shakespeare? Who knows what'll happen to us? Maybe. We... <laughs> anyway, so we haven't found it yet. But you know, it's it's all relative. You know, and when an animal normally needs seven days 
to solve a task, and now it's solving it in two or three days. I mean, that's that's remarkable. So what what's going on with? I, I want to ask questions about uh, schizophrenia and autism, and and how you're going to make sure that my brain doesn't degenerate as I get older, and all these other things. But uh, right before I leave this this whole story, what what's going on with this? You've mentioned this several times. Thirty percent of of patients who have NF1 don't manifest these other these other symptoms. Am I, am I saying that yes. correct? Yes. So, so, so it's called partial penetrance. Okay. Every human disease has that. So you have a, a mutation like NF1, and then what you find is that, let's take other symptoms of NF1, for, you know, for example, tumors. Some patients have a very large tumor load, but others don't. Right. Some patients have a large you know, mutation load that leads to then deficits in learning and memory, but other patients don't have deficits in learning and memory. The reason is that in addition to the neurofibromatosis type 1 gene, which causes NF1, you know, the disorder, uh, there are other genes that interact with it and are behind the scenes making the mutation worse or better. Okay, so they can compensate. So some exactly. of them have it compensated. So I told you, for example, that there is too much RAS in the membrane, right. uh, too much of this in NF1. Imagine that the protein that adds these little fat groups that allows the RAS to be in the membrane, imagine that that protein doesn't work so well. Now, Right. Normally, you would have too much of RAS in the membrane of an F1, but because this, the protein that adds this fat group doesn't work so well, now there's normal levels. Right. And you learn perfectly fine, despite the fact that you have a mutation in an F1. You have two things that they cancel each exactly. other. Exactly. And actually, we tested that directly. One of, the, one of the more interesting experiments that we have done and published, actually, Rui Costa did in the lab and published, was showing that if you have a K-RAS mutation, which, by the way, mutations in the RAS genes are involved in so-called rasopathies. NF1 is a form 1 kind of rosopathy. Okay. Too much of this protein, the RAS protein in the, in, in the memory, you know, too much of that protein is, uh, is bad for learning. Too little of it is bad for learning. Right. So, and one of the most magical experiments that we've done is that we had two different mice with two different genetic disorders, if you will, okay, caused by mutations that impaired their learning. They didn't learn well. And we placed both mutations in the same mouse and those animals learn completely normally. Wow. <laughs> and the reason is that, you know, we are a, the result of all of these biological forces working together and determining whether we can remember, whether we can learn, whether we can pay attention, whether we are what we are. And, uh, and often they are in opposition sure. of each other. Well, these Excellent. systems are so complex, it's, it's almost a wonder you can get anything done at all. I mean, because uh, there's so many variables. Uh, ah, but that's true. There is many variables, but any, at any one point, evolution worked on one or two of them. Right. And then those allele combinations became dominant because they were so adaptive. Right. And those are the ones that we see today. Right. And those are the mice that we study because we engineer them that way. It is true that there's a great deal of diversity, but it's also true that experimentally we can fix that, that diversity artificially. We can just make animals that are twins. Essentially, the strains of mice that we work with, they're essentially twins. And then amongst this similarity, we can then see the differences when one of these genes is mutated. Right. So but in you, humans, of course, things are more complicated. Yeah, of course. But yeah. so, so you could generate your own twin data, basically. But, but essentially, the, all of mouse genetics is done what it essentially amounts to twins. Huh. Uh, it's, you know, hundreds of twins that where we, we manipulate this gene or that gene and then see what happens. That's clever. Right. Uh, because 
this diversity, which is our friend, if we want to understand these interactions, it's our enemy sure. when we're trying to simplify and understand things. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Tell me, tell me uh, how how you're saving the world with all these other things. Tell me, tell me, <laughs> tell me about, <laughs> tell me because you got, you know, it's 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 terribly depressing going to your webpage and looking at all the different things that you're involved in. Um, but uh, depressing and inspiring. Depressing if. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I choose to see it from a hopeful perspective. You know, these problems have been there since the beginning of yeah. humanity. You know, we have had these diseases. Actually, there are historical accounts, descriptions of these diseases that are as old as the Egyptians and so on. But finally, we are at a time in the history of humanity that we understand enough about the brain that we have the hope of being able to intervene. So much so that we have been able to intervene, if anything else, in animal models. And we're starting to get the early days of studies in humans. You know, the very same drug that we used in mice, lovastatin, it's a type of statin, has been used in humans with some positive effects. We don't have the numbers that we need. We will have them soon. One of the things that uh, I have been very lucky is that these results got other, got other people involved, including labs that tested the clinical implication of our findings and there are ongoing large clinical trials. So in a few months, we will know actually whether statins worked or not. But in, in meanwhile, for lovastatin specifically, because statins is a class of drugs, but they're not all the same. They go to the blood, they go into the brain at different rates and so on and so forth. And remember, too much drugs right. is just as bad as too little. Right. So you gotta be careful. Right. Take too much of the drug, it's worse. You know, then not taking enough is, is bad too. Taking the right levels is okay. So, uh, and what we have learned from the early, very small clinical trials that have been done uh, with lovastatin is that there's some hope there. There was a paper that was just published showing that neurofibromatosis type 1 patients have enhanced inhibition. They didn't do, do the studies like we did. In mice, we measured directly from these neurons. In, well, they did fMRI, presumably, right? Well, it or wasn't fMRI exactly. So what they were able you know, to do is to stimulate motor neurons by stimulating muscles and then record responses in the brain because you can put electrodes on top of the brain and they can look at responses and they have a way of testing inhibition and they found that neurofibromatosis type 1 patients just like an F1 mice have enhanced inhibition. They also have a way of testing plasticity, synaptic plasticity. Very indirect, but it's an echo of synaptic plasticity because you cannot do directly in the brain for obvious reasons, okay. right? And they were able to show that in addition to enhanced inhibition, just like we showed in mice, right. these patients also have a deficit in plasticity. How and do you quantify? How do you quantify deficit well, in plasticity? The way you quantify it is plasticity can be triggered by training, a lot of training, right? So that's what causes learning. I tell you about these things and you right. learn them. Now, with this technology, instead of being learning because it's too complicated to follow these responses. What they've done is to stimulate these muscles and record from the motor cortex. Mm -hmm. And they stimulate it in a pattern that's similar to the pattern that normal, normally uh, triggers learning. So it's the same, it's the same arrangement, the same okay. architecture. Right. Okay? And what they've seen is that in normal brains, you see a, a potentiation of these muscle-triggered responses, just like you see a potentiation of these responses during learning right. in, in rodents, not in, in humans, but in rodents. So this is all very indirect. But the amazing thing is that they did see enhanced inhibition. They saw deficits in plasticity, both of which were reversed 
by lovastatin treatment, wow. just like they were in mice. And they showed that the, the patients had problems with attention that also were improved by treatment lovastatin. Now, I don't put much, much faith in that because it's a very small trial. But it was just striking, the specificity of these results. And how, how much, you presumably, was it, was it improved relative to the placebo effect and all the rest of it? That's right. So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled you know, study. So you know, when you don't have placebo control, you know, the placebo effect is so large, it's hard to know what to make of all, any of it. But in this trial, it was that way. I should tell you, for, for, for completeness sake, yeah. that a student of mine went into the Netherlands and carried a large trial, not with, with Lovastatin, but with Simvastatin. Now, when we were thinking about it, he and I, um, we thought, ah, oh, Simvastatin's going to be much better because it goes into the blood-brain, it goes through the blood-brain barrier. So it turns out that your brain is separate from the rest of your body by so. a filter. <laughs> so stuff that's in your blood, in your heart, in your kidney, in your gut, doesn't just get to the brain. Certain stuff gets to the brain, certain stuff doesn't. It's called the the, you know, the blood-brain barrier, right. okay? So simvastatin, not lovastatin. Lovastatin is what we worked in mice. Simvastatin is what we tried because in Europe, simvastatin is approved, approved for use, but lovastatin isn't. And you said it penetrates the... It penetrates the brain much, much better, you know, 10 times better. And we thought, that's going to be much better. Not true. When we run, you know, clinical trials, and he ran a sizable clinical trial, it failed. We don't know why it failed. But I suspect that it failed because maybe too much of it got to the brain, right. you know. And we know that too little rust, right, too much exactly. rust is bad. So maybe too much got to the brain and that's why it failed. We don't know. But the good news is that uh, there is a, a very large trial that we have been a part of. And this trial will be unblind. Unblind means we're going to you know, figure out who's who and what effects were um, in the summer. So I won't have to wait very long until I know whether these decades of work have actually well, translated into helping a group of people or not. <laughs> well, come on. I mean, you're, you're know, being too modest. No, yeah. I mean, you're, you're on the track. I mean, getting back to what you said before about a yeah. leg to stand on. Yeah. You've got a pretty strong leg to stand on. I mean, where, where exactly it works, exactly with which doses, with which drugs, with, I mean, that's all very that's much exactly up in the air. Right. But, no, no, no that's, that's actually exactly right. Because... This is the very beginning of what will be a large number of similar studies in intellectual disabilities, for example. You know? And this is on track ground. We just don't know what strategies will work, how we should go about tackling this problem. So even in the cases for which we may not be as lucky initially, the process is teaching us a lot about what we need you know, to do. So I don't think at this point, if the science is carefully done, that there are any losses. They're all gains because we've never done this. And this is one of the biggest challenges of mankind, right? I mean, we have had these problems since the, you know, the dawn of history. And now we're finally at a time where we are on the threshold of being able to address them. Now, we're not going to always be successful. Of course not. But we are learning how to increase the rate of those, su of those successes. And I think it's... I mean, I can't think of anything more exciting, you know, to do with one's life at this point. You know, it's very personal, very subjective, obviously. Uh, everyone in science will say the same thing about anything that they do. But, well. but you know, uh, <laughs> I'm I, so sure. well, you know, I'm sure, that, I'm sure they would. But I'll tell you, I am lucky to be here because I, I think there's something truly historically happening, you know, that uh, I really think that our the children, certainly the children of our children, will have a very different relationship 
with these types of disorders than we have them today. You know, I mean, think about the time before antibiotics, yeah. how the world was. A simple cut will kill you, could yeah. kill you. And now we don't even think about it. We, we cut ourselves sometimes, you know, severely, and we just wash it, treat it, take antibiotics, and most of us, you know, survive it. And just to think of the time where uh, parents with a child with neurofimatosis, with autism, with schizophrenia, with any of these horrible, horrible disorders, uh, it won't, it will be like a cut. Something you need to address, something you need to treat, but not that will be life-changing like it is now. You know, lifespan of parents which, with children with intellectual disabilities and autism and schizophrenia is decreased. That's how severe those disorders sure. are to families that have to deal with them. Sure. So, you know, to even be in the pack of individuals that may be able to do something about this is, uh, it keeps me up late at night, sometimes a bit you know, too long, and gets me up in the lab early in the morning because, I mean, what else you know, could one spend a lifetime doing that is more worthwhile? You know? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I could, I, I could uh, uh. literally talk to you for 10 more hours, but I won't because you've been extremely generous with your time. I will ask you one, one more question in, in, in conclusion, um, which is, suppose you had the opportunity to have any scientific question you wanted mm -hmm. answered. You were, I was some great guru who was talking to you, mm -hmm. some infallible being, and, mm -hmm. and you could address two or three very specific or general <laughs> questions to me, and I would be able to mm -hmm. respond accurately with, uh, with whatever the answer might be. Mm -hmm. What would those questions be? Uh, to me, there's not even a close second. Uh, there is one thing that modern biology needs to know more than anything, which is, how are we going to navigate the immensity of this information that we have generated? It's way beyond human dimensions. It has been way beyond human dimensions for a couple of decades already. You know, we have 25 million papers published in PubMed, probably as many as nearly 300 million experiments published. Take learning and memory. A conservative estimate is probably two, three, four, five million experiments published in learning and memory. How can anyone have even a passing you know, familiarity with this literature so that we can optimize its use? So if I had a chance of you know, flicking my finger and getting something, knowing something that will make the biggest difference, there's absolutely no doubt what that will be, is a strategy, a way of navigating this immensity so that we can take advantage of it not be crushed by it, and that's what's happening right now. And you are it's contributing mostly to that. Crushing I mean, you are—that is one of your research projects. Indeed, be, it's be. something that I have been limping along, doing something about it because uh, not much is happening, not fast enough. You know, there's a number of computer scientists worldwide that are dealing with with this big data problem in science. Right. But so far, this big data problem has has been really focused on. Uh, organizing this long list of genes, organizing these complex patterns of brain activity, it hasn't really been directed towards organizing the immensity of the published literature. And we need all that has been done with neuroinformatics, which is the field in neuroscience that has organized information about the brain. Uh, we need all of that, but I think more than anything, more urgently than anything, we need a way of navigating the immensity of this literature. And in a very modest, you know, very childlike almost way, we have tried, you know, to do just that. You know, find a way to organize these experiments, 
find an interface so that scientists like myself can uh, interact with them as we interact with our Google Maps. I mean, think of the immensity and complexity of, of Los Angeles. Uh, you have been here a couple of times. It's 90 kilometers across, right? So to find your way from the airport here and to Caltech and to other places that you probably had interviews like we are having now, you know, it's complicated. But you had your Google map and you were able to instruct it to tell you how to get from downtown to Caltech, how to get from downtown to, uh, to UCLA and so on and so forth. That's what we need. We need to have all of this information on a place that allows us to query it and interact with it just like we interact with our, with our Google Maps. And uh, because, you see, its complexity is not the problem, right? I mean, you know, you know the complexity is what helps us. Right, right. The more we know about the brain, the more we can figure out how to help people and how to know the, and answer the questions that we want answered. The problem is that we haven't uh, progressed enough in terms of developing the tools that allow us to use this information. Imagine economics if we didn't have computers. I don't want to talk about economics because it's yeah, not, but it's anyway. not clear they actually know what they're doing. Okay, but just imagine this. Imagine if, if we could make transactions every few seconds or every few hundred milliseconds, how different the world economy would be. You know, perhaps better, perhaps okay. worse, I don't know. But it would be fundamentally different. And in a way, that's where we are with science, which is we have the, we have the complexity of economics, but we don't have the tools to deal with this complexity in ways right. that would allow us to navigate it and use it in our favor instead of against us. You need the structure. You need some patterns overall. You need, you need people to be able to come in and, and get some sense of, of promising areas uh, based upon the evidentiary uh, reasoning and, and results, overwhelming results, without having to feel that they are overwhelmed because there are 25 exactly. million papers that we they need, have to read about. We need simplification principles. I mean, think about it. Why aren't the number of roads in the world a problem for Google Maps? I mean, there are probably trillions of roads in the world. I don't know about trillions. So, you know, I mean, certainly billions. Right. I, I actually don't know the magnitude of the problem. But there are certainly billions right. of different little roads in the world. How come that's not a problem? How come that's an advantage you know, for Google Maps? The reason is because that information is structured. In maps, all roads have a symbol. All highways have a different symbol. All, you know, so when we look at a map, that's not a problem. That's, that's an advantage that they are all right. mapped. All rivers, I mean, look at the many, many, many thousands of rivers that are all in Google Maps. That's not a problem. That's an advantage because right. it's a landmark that we use, the oceans, the, uh, you know, the, the cities, and so on. So we need a similar type of organization that would allow us to intuitively navigate this immensity as easily as we intuitively use Google Maps to navigate and find our way in novel cities around the world. Is, That's what we need. Is this yeah. catching on? Is this, is, is this sentiment one which is, uh, is becoming more and more endorsed Absolutely. by your peers throughout the, the community? Absolutely. Big data is big everywhere, including in science. Uh, we just had a meeting, actually, I organized a meeting uh, at UCLA recently on this very topic uh, that is a meeting, well, the meeting in Toronto that I was at this past weekend was on this topic. So there are efforts. They're still embryonic. This is not a problem sure. that there's a lot of, of economic force behind it. There are a lot of labs working on this, but it's definitely a problem that's recognized. NIH has this, uh, you know, data to knowledge, big data to knowledge, you know, program that they have put in place. I mean, it's on the order of tens of millions of dollars. It's not on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, but it's a beginning. So I think that we are getting to start. The thing that 
uh, makes me so anxious about this is that we have the technology to do this. Right. It's a this is problem. not a problem. Yeah. This is not a problem we can solve. The only reason we haven't solved it yet is because it's a problem that we haven't seen with clarity. Mm. You know, this is a problem we can solve. It will have a huge impact on the on the optimization of science, right? Because I mean, you know, my graduate students they spend 12, 14, 16 hours a day. I spend that type of time with science, so there's a tremendous involvement. Our country, and I age along, thirty-three billion dollars. You know, so we are putting resources behind this, and I think it's time that we put resources on optimizing this process. Essentially, that's what I would ask the godlike creature that you <laughs> <We're>, talked about. <laughs> we're, we're only the case. Uh, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? Is there anything that uh, we've left unsaid that you would like to communicate? Well. That is actually something which makes me very uncomfortable to talk about because it's a topic that's usually shied away from, you know? We have children with horrible genetic disorders and we want them treated. Uh, we have problems in heart, cancer, metabolism that destroy our lives and we want them treated. But often, we shy away from facing the hard questions of what we need to do to treat them, you know? And some of the things that we're forced to do is to do experiments in animals, you know? And there is a growing movement worldwide against experimentation in science. And I respect those people profoundly, actually. The, the questions that they're asking and their concerns, I share them. But the movement has become so radicalized they have some of these people, not all of them, most people are peaceful and they have concerns against animals and they express them. But some of these people have used terrorist tactics, mm. right? So I have colleagues that were forced to abandon research on disorders that we won't treat it because their cars were firebombed, you know. There are real ethical problems that are difficult and need our society to take a mature, thoughtful, look at it, that we are not discussing, that we are not talking about because this question is being taken over by individuals that are radicals on both sides. Right. You know, scientists that think it's okay to do everything and, and individuals in the public that think that we can't do anything, you know. So somewhere that is a very difficult balance, one that I struggle with every day, you know, there's not a single experiment in my lab that gets done lightly. You know, we respect these animals, these are little mice, we love them. But we love our children and we want to address these heavy and very difficult problems that we discussed in our conversation. You know, this is a difficult issue, one that we have not come to terms because we have not sat down at the same table and talked maturely about this. Right. We desperately need this conversation. We desperately need to educate the public. We desperately need to educate our children about it. So we have clarity and lucidity about the choices we are making because they are difficult choices. But the stakes are too important. But the stakes are too high, yeah. you know. Uh, I mean, we can't walk away yeah. from the people in the Ronald Reagan hospital that are literally dying slowly of painful, terrible deaths, you know, without any thought to what's behind the treatments that are helping these people. You know, we need to face these issues. They are difficult, they are painful, they involve very difficult, you know, decisions, but we need to address them head on, you know. So something needs to change in the Western world. I don't know about 
I know about Europe and the United States because I travel there and Asia, you know, countries that have a very, a very big investment in science. And these are very difficult decisions and ones that somehow we have not maturely debated in ways that are helpful and, and constructive. And I really think this needs to be done. Alcino, thank you very, very much for your time. I've had just a tremendous pleasure talking to you. Pleasure. It was really a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Biology, along with separate discussions with Jay Gargas, Nick Lane, Stephen Scherer, and Matthew Walker. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. While those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.